Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, the 50th episode of the Comics Fondle podcast. Uh, Yay, 50! My, my name's Andrew, and uh, my blog's comicsfondle.com. And I'm Vernon, uh, the uh, owner of a recently deceased comic store, working gigs in his spare time to keep his head over water. And so it's uh, time for, it's you know, it's March, so we thought we would... Uh, <laughs> Is it March yet? It's March first. March first. So we thought we'd get around to our end of uh, our 2018 wrap up uh, for this episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was just time in the making. Well, look at it this way: we put more thought into it. That's what the extra time took. That is true. Um, even though it feels like these comics came out six years ago, uh, it's amazing how fast that goes. I know. I'm looking at some of these. I'm like. Wow, I have to go over and look at this thing again just so I can talk about it again. You know, I did that a few times. Yeah, I'm just kind of like, did I read that? I didn't, I don't, did I, I didn't read that. <laughs> but I read that, yeah. So. yeah. so, and we decided that for our 50th podcast, that would tie in nicely for our, uh, what do you call it, the comics, the 2018 Comics Fondle Awards. There you go. I, I like the sound of that. It's so classy, you know, especially we're only a week late from the Oscars, right? So we're not that. Exactly. Yeah. It could have been a lot later. Yeah. <laughs> damned 10. We could be as late as damned 10. Damned 10. Oh, my God. There's a joke for later, everyone. All right. So, yeah. Um, so, what makes a best of 2018 comic, Vernon? Uh, a best of 2018 comic means it's the complete package to me. Like, the writing and the art are in perfect tune with one another, and they form... A, a kind of synergy that makes for a comic that's an overall really good read. They don't waste time and they get the point across and they completely subject us to their dimension without any flaws. How's that sound? What, what do you have? Do you have anything you want to add to that? No. No, nope, that covered it. Okay, good. I'm good with that. Yeah. We have honorable mentions, which we'll get to in a second too, just because uh, there's a lot of comics that are, may have flaws and may not be perfect, but are certainly worth your time to read. I mean, yeah, I will add that we don't do much in the way of Marvel or DZ comics just because they're so horribly flawed that we really can't read them anymore. There might be one or two scattered in here, but not very many anyway. No, but there are. Well, how many are there? We we wanted to take a minute and talk about Black Crown. Uh, oh, yeah. Is, uh, shit, what is her name? Uh, one of the editors, not Karen Bird. Shelly. Shelly Bond. Shelly Bond's. IDW imprint. IDW. Fucking A. IDW. Um, doing really good comics. Yeah. After, I mean, it's Vertigo, right? Yeah. And it's like after years of sort of threatening to do really good comics, they finally did. It's, it's almost like IDW has become the new Dark Horse if Dark Horse were maybe just a little bit better in the mid nineties. Yeah, they have yeah, they... their license shit, but then they also have this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dark Horse is obviously going through some kind of reorganization. They've lost some properties recently, but including. They got, didn't they get one of them back or something? Didn't they get one of the Star Wars back? No. No, no Star Wars. That's all Marvel. Uh, okay. I think they gave up Conan, right? And they lost make... Conan, but no, they, they've started doing Aliens again. They're making a push on Aliens. Yeah, hopefully that's a cheap license. But but Black Crown Books, an imprint of IDW with Shelley Bond as their editor, was 
I don't know. I'm going to guess this is a British thing, looking at the back matter and the editorial things. It, it was all seems, done from England. Yes, it, was it done from England, or was it just... I couldn't tell. kind of a mix, because Assassinistas is definitely American. Right. Kid, um, shit. Kid Lobotomy is definitely American. Yeah. The current one that we're reading is definitely American, but there is, like, Punk's Not Dead... And then some of the Black Crown Quarterly stuff felt very British. It feels very, um... Uh, assembled? Assembled, but also, like, very sort of punk in the 70s retro punk sort of way. Like, yeah. it, It's a distinctly English feel to publishing comics when you're looking at the yeah. culture. Yeah. And so... It's been really, I think we probably talked about it last year too, but it's been, it's kept up its uh, rate of success. I mean, even the stuff of theirs that we don't read, it's not like it's probably not good. We just don't read it. it DC is like kind of blindly trying to put together their Vertigo label. And so many of the projects are just kind of not something I even want to pick up and read, you know, but the Black Crown seems to kind of get it, you know, yeah. and what it takes to do a alternative, slightly mainstream comic that the average person could pick up. Yeah. So, yeah. Black Crown, once again, um, I, I think the only concern I have with Black Crown is it appears they are doing some sort of a first series, see how it does, commission a second series. Yeah. Which is fine. But your first series is are cliffhanging, like Kid Lobotomy had a cliffhanger. I think Assassinistas right. had a cliffhanger of sorts. Like, right, we didn't finish Punk's Not Dead or something Punk's like that. Punk's Not Dead definitely did. It was just like a prelude to the next arc. So that's kind of the thing is if you can only do six, make sure your six are going to work if the book doesn't get picked up. I know that that's defeatist, but in the yeah, long makes- run graphic novel too i mean right. i can't pick it up punk's not dead and being satisfied by the first graphic novel you exactly know? like even our favorite project of the bunch i think you mm-hmm. and i enjoyed that the most out of the entire line yeah so it's just it's i don't know it's they're learning comics are finally able to sort of incorporate lessons learned from television but they're still not able to i don't know they're still comics like they still are acting like you know you'll be back in next month yeah here or whatever it is i don't know so it's it's weird they have to have that sense of urgency that says i gotta tell a complete story in five or six issues right and then if it works it works yeah, but anyway, Black Crown Books was, it still is an, an, a, uh, a label to keep an eye on. Hopefully IDW gets enough money from it to continue publishing. Exactly. In any particular large thing, you know. I don't know what it is to be a success in the indie world. I think they were averaging, I don't know, 4,000 copies or less. So that's that's kind of scary. I can't imagine too many comic shops carrying them. I know I carried their full line, but I would have been a, what's that word, outlier? Yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck. Good luck to Shelly Bond and her crew over there. Anyway, hopefully they can make some hash. All right, the 2018 honorable mentions list. This is 
books that, uh, in no particular order, we're not showing favoritism here, that for one reason or another we found interesting to read, but didn't quite make the uh, top of the line list anyway. Um, the first one, Batman Bl- White Knight, I think that was the title of it, by Sean Murphy. Um, I was debating whether or not I should take this off the list at the end because ultimately it's not that radical of a Batman story. You know, I mean, I suppose we're gifted by the fact that Sean Murphy does have a structural writing ability and he can tell a story more so than most artists that decide to become writers. He's had a little more. And um, he tries a lot of odd things. And his artwork is just sheer eye candy. The guy doesn't know when to stop drawing. So his panels, they turn out to be very beautiful, even though sometimes they're distracting. They're still nice works of art. You know, there's a scene of Joker in the jail cell and he's surrounded by all these fetish like Batman toy objects that the cell is completely covered with and it's just a beautiful drawing. Ultimately though, it still comes out as just another Batman story. Like, okay, it's a well told one, but I've been down this route already and it might make a good movie. I don't know. It just seems like it was I don't know, it's something that an artist might put together if he's just, like, assembling a story. Uh, I'd heard mentions that some people interpreting the Joker was gay in here. Did, did that come across to you at all? No. Me neither. I, I just went, went over my head if that was the case. I was like, oh, okay, he might be, like, more of a friendly, effeminate Joker, but I never thought he was gay, you know. And he hung around with Harley. I don't know. Or would that make her, like, a fag hag or something like that? I, I just didn't – it didn't I, – I didn't resonate with me, but – um, he did a good job on her overall. If you're a Batman fan, if there's one Batman book to read, I'd say that would probably be the one. I don't yeah. know. Did you did you like it or how how did it work? Uh, I mean, again, you know, it was like really cool for a while because um, Murphy incorporates a lot of sort of Batman imagery, not from the comics. So you've got like this very weird mix of. I don't know, licensed toy, familiar licensed toys with uh, more dark knight type uh, vehicle design mixed with the grandiosity of the Joel Schumacher movies. Like, it's just, it's, yeah, I mean, it's like, it'd make a good movie. Um, yeah. Big grand epicness to his artwork that carries it through quite nicely. And it promises a bunch of stuff and doesn't do anything with it, which is sort of the... It's like it has no ambition other than to sensationalize. Yeah. That was disappointing because it seemed like he was going to do... He had a a real story to tell, but he didn't. Yeah. The whole suggestion of the Batman-Joker dichotomy is something that's been exhibited a lot. And it seemed like he was kind of going to maybe a little place that it hadn't been before, you know. Uh, but he does. He kind of abandons that by the second half of the book. And it kind of turns into more of a pedestrian, pedestrian excuse me, spectacular story. Yeah. Um, he's doing a sequel of some kind, which... Well, it's old. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know. It... I'm not sure that it could get interest. I'd be interested in it as a monthly. I mean, maybe when it was done, I'd read it. But even yeah. then, it's just like, eh. Yeah. The Batman yeah. well is very, very, very dry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So. I'm going to let you do anything with Batman that takes it to another level that might keep it interesting, you know. Right. It's just Batman's, like, you know. Is that our only DC book on the list? No, it is not. It's got a couple of more, but they're not traditional DC books. Okay. 
But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's fine. Like, it was yeah. pretty good but, for what it was. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it promised more at the beginning, though. Yes, right. That's what got us on for the first yeah. five issues. And then, okay, we're there, and then it's not going anywhere. So we feel like we feel obligated to finish the 8 to 10 or whatever right. it was. And they extended it an issue, remember? Right. It didn't need that either. It didn't no. need that. It need that. No, it was already eight or ten issues. That's fine, yeah. All mm. right, so... Yeah. Moving on. We're going to go to the Radical DC. The Radical DC. Dastardly and Mutterly. Or is it Mutterly? Mut- By Garth Ennis and shit, what is his name? Oh, man. Oh, it was just one name, too. It wasn't Maury... Who was it? I'll look they, it up. You start talking. Look, I'll look it up. Yeah, talking. Yeah, Dastardly and Mutley. Like, uh, DC is trying to revive their Hunter Barbera characters to find reasons to publish comic books. I mean, I think it started out as one of those fifth week kind of ideas a year or so back, and now they want to put out some specials just to get the uh, characters' exposure again. And by God, it's been giving work to some of our favorite writers, like. Um, who was it? Uh, Mark Russell and uh, Garth Ennis, who have been able to take the ball and run with it. You know, you'd like take this pedestrian idea of Dastardly and Muttley, which were pretty second-rate characters in a second-rate animation type thing from Hanna-Barbera, and give them life. And uh, the whole plot gets pretty fucking meta. Uh, Garth Ennis uses this uh, mind-expanding psychedelic nanobite that starts infecting people and they start turning into Hanna-Barbera characters and having psychedelic dreams and stuff. And he uses it as like a, a meta commentary on his own feelings about life on earth and how humans relate to each other. And for six issues, it's some pretty trippy fucked up shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the artist's name is Morissette. Morissette. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah, that was right. I forgot yeah, about it. I feel like overall, Dastardly and Muttley was more successful than Jimmy's Bastards. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think that uh, he had an idea. Like, Arthur seems to be the guy, the guy that works in the hallway of DC offices and listens to editorial looking to say, what are they looking for? You know, and then I'll say, oh, yeah, I can write a Dastardly and Muttley epic about the end of the world or the transformation of everything in reality or something. I'm like, yeah. You go, you go, guy. So, but a lot of fun. I yeah. mean, uh, not he, deep, but a lot of fun. He's had a lot of success with his comedy, his straight comedy, in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He's developed that quite a bit to where it's uh, comedy's hard to write because yeah. you have so many different types of people get a sense of humor out of what you're writing, and I don't think that's easy. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's. Um... It's interesting because he sort of, you know, started with very dark comedy. And I mean, it's still not sunny comedy, but no. the way he tells the jokes is far more traditional than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the end of the world, uh, according to Hanna-Barbera, that's pretty good stuff. Yeah. I'll take that. So DC does get to publish one that we enjoyed. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That might be it. It uh, might be. Next up is dynamite right oh no we got one more dc after that anyway dynamite barbarella is dynamite right yep barbarella is pretty dynamite uh this year's book issues um seemed kind of late uh 
Nope, yeah. Yeah, they got later. I mean, I imagine what it's like working for Dynamite. It's yeah. like piece work, you know. And it's it's done at 12, so the series is done now. And so now they have like four oversized albums they can sell overseas, basically. Well, I'd have good luck with that. It's been a success. I mean, it was a successful series. It had its ups and downs. It had a couple bad issues this year. Not one of only one of them was total throwaway, but some yeah. other ones have not been. It has not been on par uh, with the first five or whatever six, it was. Five or six, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, maybe because they had to wrap the damn thing up all of a sudden, and it certainly never played like it was going to be a twelve-issue maxi series when it started. No, so it, it they were responding to the market and wrapping up as they could, and. Yeah, I think that if we weren't seeing something we're going to talk about later um, in a similar vein to Barbarella, the book might be more impressive. But when you get to see sort of alongside a more successful work, you get to see where Barbarella doesn't quite succeed. But I mean, it's been a great ride. Like if there's a nice collection of it, that would be worth it. It's got the some first, gorgeous the first, art. Yeah, the first hunk is, is fine. I, I agree 100%. I mean, Barbara Allen is an old European character, and uh, Jane Fonda, her first starring movie, yeah. got to be in Barbara Allen back in, I don't know, 1970 or whatever it was, 68 or whatever, I forget. But um, Mike Carey takes the most of some, um, what do you call it, journeyman writing work, yeah. and just says, okay, and I could do this, and he gets Barbara Allen the comic, and he's teamed up with this Yurar, Kenan Yurar, this artist who's keeps up with the European style of cartooning, you know, with the inventive spaceships and the pseudo-sexuality of Barbarella. She's a titular character who's very loose with the morals, but still particular about who she sleeps with anyway. But um, uh, I think they did a pretty good job for 12 issues. I think you're right. By the end of 12, it was like, okay, we're going to mercifully stop here while we've still got some momentum and care, you know, and they do. And the, I don't know, the first six were really good. I enjoyed them for what we call it space fantasy with mm. a bit of, I wouldn't say softcore porn thrown in, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, yeah. But anyway, the, the next one we got on tap, Exit Stage Left, was a real the Snagopus Chronicles. That's it. By Mark Russell. And God help me, I can't remember the name of the, the artist right now, but uh, I should because I wrote an article on it, but sad for me. Um, that was another one of those Hanna-Barbera projects that DC picked up and promoted that Mark Russell decided to have some hash with. He's been really good in his mainstream efforts so far. And uh, he did Prez, and um, prior to this, he did a great run on Flintstones with Steve Pugue. And uh, Exit Stage left the Snagglepuss Chronicles. Um, I was reading in pamphlet form and the jarring juxtaposition between the human characters and the animal characters in it left me uh, odd because I was reading it jumbled, you know, and then I finally got a collection of it for Christmas. My daughter sent me one and I got to read it straight through. And while I still have problems with the human animal transition, like the, the animals wear human masks or vice versa or whatever, I don't quite understand that. But he's shoehorning the story of Tennessee Williams and the 1950s uh, Un-American Activities Committee in, in America 
altogether with Snagglepuss. Uh, I'm not sure what like feline character is like a pink lion or something like that. I'm going to guess, you know, but he walks upright like many Hanna-Barbera characters, cartoon characters. And uh, he actually uh, gets the whole life of Tennessee Williams and redoes it and updates it a little bit because Tennessee visits that famous bar in New York City that was a gay bar. But it read really good six or seven issues straight as a graphic. Mm -hmm. It was pretty good and uh, much better. A little flawed, but, you know, a really great story. And Mark Russell is someone we're going to have to watch. That's all there is to it. It's too good. But what was it? He's got something that uh, DC went down, the story of Jesus or something like that? Yeah, some Jesus thing DC wimped out on, showing that they haven't grown balls since they screwed over Rick Veach back in the 90s. Yeah, that's true. They won't touch Jesus, I tell you. They'll, they'll write things about everything else, but not Jesus. The only person at DC who ever had a pair was Karen Berger. <laughs> <clears throat> that, that That's <clears throat> not genitalia that's integrity and ambition or you know gravity as a person exactly there's some they're wimps like this would be their total they could define themselves with this and they choose not to well you know and and that's the thing what do you do when you're a corporate entity like dc which is essentially owned by warner brothers no controversial moves whatsoever because they want to succeed you know I imagine they've got to be now more nervous than ever because intellectual property places are getting taken over by, what would you call it, mainstream distribution. You know, things like Netflix or Disney well, or whatever. AT&T just bought Time Warner. That just went through this week. So, oh, there you go. And there we is. already know that AT&T has a very different plan um, for HBO. Uh, they want HBO to compete directly with Netflix instead of being TV and movies or, uh, you know, cat, um, licensed movies. They don't, they don't want to focus on that. They want to compete on original programming. Yeah. And the thing is though, HBO has had cojones with their programming for 15 ish years now. Oh, yeah. Strictly and, our, our, our plus stuff, yeah. Right. And it's like, and seriously, DC in 2019 can't come up with a pair? Like, seriously? Mm. They, it's it, it's not like they can't come up with a separate publishing uh, arm for comic books. They've right. done that before. Vertigo was like that. Vertigo even though it could easily be like that again. Yes. It'd be yes. so much easier these days with just the way they do it. But they still can't do it. So anyway, I mean, it's just, it's not a surprise. Like, DC is never going to positively surprise us. Like, the Hanna-Barbera thing is it, apparently. Right, yeah, that's it. These are some one-shots. Like them while they last. They will work for guys, and we just got... You know what, really, um, this ties right into an article you sent me a link for about uh, comic book retailer Brian Hibbs and his 10-point plan to help with comic books. Now... I'm thinking I'm, I'm on board with 80, 85% of it, no problem. It's usually what one of these type plans. But DC and Marvel, they're huge corporate entities. They look at a plan like this and see that it was envisioned by one guy who runs two comic stores in San Francisco, and they don't take it seriously, and they don't even look at it from maybe he's got an idea. It's just that he's wrong because he's small, and this is definitely showing up in their lack of ability to publish vertical-level material. There's no reason they can't do that. None whatsoever. Ah, well. 
That's a left. Vernon says read the train. I I trust him enough that I might do that someday. <laughs> yes, it's good fun. We can take you about a good hour. All right. Redneck, uh, Donnie Cates, who he's a Marvel guy, right? Not DC. Yeah, he's, he freelances at Marvel. Yeah, he freelances at Marvel. And Lissandro Etheran, who is sort of the star of the book, because I don't know that I could read Redneck without that art. Yeah, he's got a nice cartoony graphic style yeah. to keep invested with the characters, and they're really nicely designed. And he's got a liquidity to his uh, artwork that carries through the book. Um, Donny Cates keeps things moving. I guess that's what he does as a writer. Yeah. Um, he's not vested in the full service stories. But I don't know. I enjoyed Redneck for the soap opera aspects. Yeah. Like, you know, I could see that being a TV show. It's truly amazing how so many comics are kind of written for the TV shows and stuff. And I think Redneck, the story of what multiple generations of Southern Texas family vampires yeah. might catch, you know, yeah. no reason why not, you know. Well, we were following the adventures. I wouldn't call it a masterpiece comic, but it was a good story. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it bounced back. It had like a... Okay, so Redneck does understand a good publishing schedule in that... It does six-issue arcs that are satisfactory. They have a hook for the next one. Yeah, they At least, you know, it could either be a hook or it could be a really shitty ending, but it's an ending. Right. And so I think it was at the end of the second long arc that it was just, it was kind of unsteady, but it bounced back this year unexpectedly because they make a very dramatic move with the story and, uh, you and I almost fell off the book at that point. Yeah, mod, yeah. So I mean, it's um, is it a Skybound title or no? Might be, might be. The Skybound books, which is what's his fucks imprint? Uh, uh, Savage Dragon, Eric Larson, or no, is that? Oh, it's uh, Invincible. Other... It's Kirkman's, oh, isn't it? Kirkman. Yes. It's Kirkman's friends, I think. Yeah, probably. Of, of those, this has been the most successful overall. I don't think I've stuck. I didn't stick with. I might have stuck with Manifest Destiny this long, but I didn't stick with Birthright this long. No, no, right. I mean, they're they're kind of nice. They're good genre studies. That's. I guess Skybound does good genre material. Yeah, but... Ultimately, you know, it's got to carry me a few. It's one of the few books that kept me under what eighteen plus issues yeah. or whatever. Are yeah. All right. Good. All right, next on the honorable mentions list, have you been keeping up with your Brubaker, young man, or have you fallen off the wagon? I'm caught up. I've got my, I've read all three issues of Criminal this year, Vernon. Is three out already? No, I mean, you know, I read Criminal Zero, Kill or Be Killed. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, Brubaker, he's got to be one of the hardest working mans in comics, and he's got Sean Phillips chained to his leg for the ride, obviously, because... Just about everything these guys do, they must put out at least a comic a month together or more. Well, yeah. when they're or, putting out, well, oh shit, no. Killer Be Killed is that other one. You didn't oh, like? Oh, that's. The, I thought it was the my heroes have already been always been junkies. Now nah, we'll jump I, to that. My joke doesn't make any sense, but anyway, yeah, yeah Killer Be Killed, another one where Vernon swears. To read it complete. And, well, it was right. It was right after Fade Out. Okay, yep. and 
all of a sudden he has the best work of his career working with an editor and fade out and then decides to kind of go his own route on kill or be killed. So we get turned into this really long mishmashy story with sidetracks a la Fatal. Like Fatal, we discovered in Brubaker that his strongest point is short stories done in ones. He, no one, no one in the, he, there's no one in the business, probably or very few that can keep up with him. And Killer Be Killed, the story of a psychopath who you never get on board or fully sympathetic with because he kills bad people, um, had some beautiful gems of issues. You know what I mean? Like he's got this girlfriend he's got to get rid of because his life's getting too dangerous. And then we find out her story about how she gets involved with him. And that was actually a good done in one 20 page story or 22 page story. And Killer Be Killed is filled with those nice isolated little moments like that. It's like Fatal where he'll have this great short story in him and it'll act like as padding for the main story or whatever. So it drives you nuts because the story doesn't advance, but then you just read a good comic book. So you're kind of torn, you know? So this series, while flawed, kept me on board, even though I hated the ending and I didn't like the character either, but I won't go into that now. It was filled with those little punctuated things like Fatal was. So that's that's my reason for reading it. Now, he's relaunched Criminal this year, which you are familiar with, right? Yes, I am. Okay, so now Criminal, <laughs> Brubaker and Phillips announced their first ever original graphic novel for last fall. It was called My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies. And guess what? It's just a fucking criminal book. That's and that's sad praise indeed. It really is. I mean, it's not even like one of those good criminal books. Like it's fine. I don't. I'm glad Phillips has gone back to the other colorist style with the regular it, criminal book. It's his son is coloring the work now. Okay. Yeah. Well, we don't want to slander anybody, but I've got to wonder if the reason Betty Breitweiser is no longer on these books is because her husband is a fucking Trump psycho who draws pictures of Trump as Jesus. Okay, that might have something to do with it. You so can never... anyway, anyway, I don't know about that, but I'm just saying that's a thing. Um, yeah, she, Betty, yeah. Betty Breitweiser was a great color. She, she was. She was amazing. Business, and, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so Cowboys, Junkies didn't impress either of us. Um, For a criminal story rather than a fully realized tale that had texture to it. Yeah, and so now Criminal number one, I was... So the thing about Criminal is that they've been trying this for years. They've been doing Criminal for... 10 years? Year? No, it's been longer. It's when Icon started. Okay. So it's been about 13, 14 years. Okay. And they have, I think, like six trades at this point through various publishers, and probably two of those are really good. Yeah, right. But Criminal, when it started, the first arc does not, is not... Perfect. That, that's, that, okay, sure, <laughs> it's definitely not perfect. It's very disappointing, too. I mean, the art's always gorgeous. There's always some really effective scenes. But, you know, it Criminal has gotten to the point where it's its own thing, and for it to work, it needs to do certain things. And the first issue of Criminal, I thought, did that. I thought the first issue, like, had me ready to go. It was like old Criminal, when yeah. you read it. You know, one of the things he does is he bounces back in time and place, but he keeps a certain 
group of people that he keeps tabs on throughout their lifetime, and you watch them grow older and have kids. Like, okay, here's here's the done in one stuff in the first issue. Right. His son, who was portrayed wonderfully in those two one shot magazines those guys did together, is now a teenager and, and kind of fucks up when he has to rob somebody and or what do you call burglarize. Yeah. And you're right, it's a pretty good story, and it falls into it except. I think ultimately in the end, I had to say it's a criminal story. Right. We know that we know what's going to happen. We know that there's some ex-girlfriend involved and he gets to sleep with her for the night, yada, yada. And it's all done with a authenticity that works. His mm. noir is probably some of the best. Now, the second issue, you read the second issue, I right? I did. And what the fuck was that? Well, he stated in the first one in the back matter that he wasn't necessarily going to stick with one story from issue to issue. Okay, okay that's fine. I'm right. I'm, I had for myself. I thought I was reading an older issue that you sent me. I was pretty funny. I was like, "What?" It's just like, well, no. I mean, like that's fine if he wants to do a series of done in ones, whatever. Like, if he can make it work, it might work better for Criminal because the characters. Some of the problem is they're not compelling for four issues. Right. Um, but the second issue is a fucking... It's about criminal and comic book history. Aids of Howie Chicken. <laughs> and it's just like... So it's a flashback to 1997, which is problematic as fuck, because I went to comic book conventions in 1997, and there were not cosplayers. No, not yet. Not yet. And it's like, that's a plot point, is this... So the story's about, what is it, a, a criminal's son who used to be in comics, who goes and minds Howie Shaken, but older, at a comic book convention, where they talk about comic books and comic book trivia and real comic book people like, what, Julie Schwartz and other people. Yeah, well, I was thinking. Lex Toth because of the animation background and all that. Right. Well, that's that character, but they actually mentioned Julie Schwartz by name. Yeah, some of them they do. They do a lot of name drop. They name drop, and then it gets to the end. What? (laughs) They're all dead guys, too, right? Yeah. They gotta be. Yeah, yeah. It gets to the end, and then it's like, oh, wait, but it's gonna be criminal, too. Yeah. And you're just like, okay, like... Your greatest successes have been when you don't try to show range. You just try to tell this story really well. Like Fade Out, they told that story really, really, really well. They didn't... An apex, right. Right. But this, you're just like, okay, you want to drop comic book trivia? Like, why? Why are you doing this? Well, to try to get an audience, probably. I, I don't know. know. And that's just like the saddest thing. It, it, it almost seems like pandering. And then especially after we re- read Hey Kids comics by Howie Chaikin that completely finished his story before this came out. I'm like, if I was Ed Brubaker, I'd say, oh, shit, he decided to publish this just before I published my story about the comics industry. You know, I mean, we know that it's a sordid piece of shit. But Howie Chaikin delivers like a no holds barred right. total- Averaging in the industry, whereas Chakens is like this nostalgic crime story about true comic. Who's an asshole, too, by the way. He's a real asshole. Yeah, and so it's just like, okay, I'm. It's fine. It's more like, I guess, what I would expect a criminal relaunch to be. It wouldn't be. I mean, like, the first issue was not 
transcendent, but like it was a hell of a lot better. That's right. It's like they know how what they're doing now. You know what I mean? It's yeah. kind of become en route, you know, or it's by weird. road. It's yeah. very it's... I mean, I I hate to say it, but I feel like Sean Phillips needs to go. He needs oh, to go. He needs to find himself a different horse or something. Like, Brubaker is not developing as a writer in a way that we sort of thought he was going to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Fade Out was possibly one of the best comic book graphic novels ever written in our in our century as far as... It's... Oh, definitely in our century, in the 21st yeah. century, definitely. One, I guess, to have, so I guess I'm unfair about that, yeah. But... but yeah, it's just like... He's not able to follow through with anything new and different, you know? I mean, they're well-executed comics, right? And they're still above, a notch above anything Marvel mm. as they're crafted better. But I, but then, after you've read it, where do we go next? I don't want to read well-crafted criminal stories. I want to read new directions in criminal that push my boundaries of what's going on a little bit. And I don't know if the comics industry is it. I don't think sordid tales of noirish, low-rent criminals belongs into the comics industry. And, and if it does, well, Howie Chaykin did it better just before he got to it. I don't know. So, yeah, it's... it's yeah. And we're torn. We want to love Brute Baker, but he makes the wrong moves. And it's like, it's very disappointing just because he, he was on such a spectacular rise that he didn't even plateau. He just started... Falling down the mountain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he still does perfectly adequate comics for someone who's on a upper echelon of comic book reading, you know, because there's a lot to track of and you have to go back and forth in time and remember people's characters and their kids and the brothers, yada, yada. But, okay, I've been there. Where do we go? That'll, that'll be Ed's challenge for 2019. Um, all right. That's why they're honorable mentions. Yep. All right. Here's one I know you didn't read, so I'll blow through it real quick. I uh, the next two, so there. Yeah. Oh. Oh my! Okay, well, I don't know if I should. You know what? I could, I could probably put the uh, LNR if you wanted to. We can talk about it later. All right. All right. Anyway, Ether Copper Golems uh, by Matt Kent and David Rubin. I mentioned them a lot on my podcast, and they finished up their second arc with this uh, Ether character, and it's. I think it's pretty good, like simplistic fantasy, and it's carried a lot by David Rubin's artwork who uh, just has an active imagination for not just drawing conceptual ways, but how he approaches the aesthetic coloring and computer technical aspects of his art. And he's got a really good palette of tools that he's invented to work from, and it keeps it visually entertaining. Um, it's a little on the simplistic side, but I think it's decently crafted, low-level fantasy enough for me to get involved. It's not really a kid's book because there's death and uh, loss in it, but I, I enjoyed Ether just on its own points, and I think it'd probably be a good read for someone who's getting too sophisticated matter, I guess maybe after grade school, maybe in high school, I don't know, somewhere in there. Right. But anyway, it made my honorable mentions list, just because well, Matt Kent, who's not my favorite writer, he goes up and down like crazy, and he's got some high points and some low points. I definitely don't like his drawing that much. Although he beats the hell out of Jeff Lemire any day of the week. Um, <laughs> But Ether's a good one if you're interested in that subject matter. Now, did you want to go to the next one or skip it to the next one after that? Let's uh, talk about uh, L&R altogether. Okay. 
right. So we'll talk about Weatherman, which I just finished uh, the first arc uh, a couple days ago. Oh, good for you. It's fresh in your mind. It is fresh in my mind. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's another one where you're just like... Nathan Fox has got himself a good good project here, finally. He gets to do a lot of different things that he does well. I mean, there's... Some of the setup in this, I'm just like, I could this. Why is there? Why are there so many words on top of this? Like, I don't care. Uh, bit of work reading. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm just like, I no. These characters are not worth a paragraph of dialogue. Just move along. The bounty hunters. Yeah, they have a story. I'm just like, I don't give a shit. I just want to see the art. Like, (laughs) well, you know, it's got nice hooks to it, like post Earth. And every yeah. all the human bars and some other asteroids or whatever it is, and they're trying to get together. And that's the key thing is this guy who's a weatherman. You know, he's helplessly thrown in the situation because he's the key to everything. And it's interesting science fiction. I mean, yeah. and Nick Hart carries it. But you're right the the overly I don't know the heavy the heavy narrative obfuscates the the plots and you get confused and you shouldn't have to a good editor would say here let's trim this back a bit and stick to the story or whatever you know but weatherman weatherman was an engaging read for six issues you know for some reason they felt it needs to go to second season you know which on one hand it works with publishing plans of today the, the need to do a five or six issue story but on the other hand that very first arc from an indie has to do it I mean, you can't say, well, more of Weathermen when we get around to the second series. Mm-hmm. The end, you know, and it was engaging. I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, and it's, um, Weatherman's one of those, and Nathan Fox is one of those things that, I feel like some of Vertigo's problem was that they weren't able to turn Paul Pope into a bestseller. Sad, but true. Yeah. And had they been able to do that, had they been able to figure out how to do that, Weatherman would have been the kind of book that Vertigo would have been able to succeed with and really would have been able to polish into something. But I feel like Vertigo's problem goes all the way back to when they couldn't make a hundred percent sell. Right? right, that was the second one. Yeah. Well, they both knew what was it. They knew um, who's the head. Who's the head of Vertigo again? I'm sorry. Karen Berger back then. Yeah, she knew she wasn't going to be renewed, and she was telling writers to take their property. But I mean, somewhere. that was more recent. But I feel like Vertigo's Vertigo Apex is around 2000, 2001. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Because um, I mean, when did you stopped reading? Uh, I would say. They were finishing up The Unwritten by right. Mike and that. And I, I was kind of not really getting any other new stuff. Exactly. And then, you know, and it's like, so, and a lot of their stuff, like Lucifer was a whole series, right? So, like, it got to keep going. But their inability to launch new properties started with them not being able to turn Paul Pope into a, a megastar. Right. That's true. Yeah, I mean that's a sad thing. And then when we when we relate Nathan Fox to Paul Pope, they both have this organic, cartoony esque style 
in a way of handling figures. Now, Paul Pope is the more imaginative of the artist, while Nathan Fox is more of a technically accomplished craftsman. Mm. Although, but they're very similar, and they have yes. a very they have a very similar look, and I could see that. Like, if Paul Pope could be turned into a marketing thing, then you'd see a million artists imitating Paul Pope with probably Nathan Fox in the lead or up at the right. top three, you know? So, yeah, that's that's our my whining about how Vertigo never delivered on the promise. It, it's just amazing. It was about just before I closed up shop, they were like in the middle of this thing where they were going to relaunch all the Sandman characters. And I'm like, why the fuck are you doing that? These the Sandman has never been brought to film or television. It's Neil Gaiman, which I know I take shit on, but who cares? No one cares. You know what I mean? You, you've already got Harry Potter and you've already got all this other stuff. Uh, they're already making hash, and the Sandman's got to go goth whore, or it ain't going to work. That's how it's going to be. I'm sorry. Anyway, Michael Fife, whose book Strike Force caught our eye this year, also is more responsible for his privately published book called Copra, which is a run on the Suicide Squad, which I'm surprised they haven't sent a cease and desist letter over there. But apparently they like Michael Fife because they hire him to do stuff. Um but Round 5 came out, which is a collection of all his independently published issues. And he has a unique superhero take. His, his and uh, Adam Warren's Empowered are probably the freshest superhero books going on today. And Michael Fife has this truly artistic background when it comes to a He has a painterly artistic background. And he does very unusual things with uh, comic book special effects with the type of media he uses in painting his comic books. And... Um, Copra is just this really grand ride about a bunch of, I'm not going to call them superheroes because they work for a government agency very similar to what the Suicide Squad does. And uh, the characters live and die and are maimed and have relationships. And it's a, a very fairly realistic look at superheroes and uh, all done in this wonderful painted style. And you have to like superhero comics. That's probably the only drawback because if, if you're not a superhero fan, you won't like Michael Fife's comics because you won't get half of the references in there or anything like that. So he did a great job, you know, and then and then he proved uh, to do that later thing we'll talk about. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Copra, if you find volume one, just go ahead and dig into it and see if it uh, tickles your fancy because I, I like it. I'm kind of semi-addicted to it. And so now Black Hammer. <laughs> Black Hammer and the Black Hammer Universe. And there you go. The, the franchise the before. The BHU. Yeah. So, shit. What even came out this year? Did we? I think there were three miniseries is all together. Did we read? Was the first? Was The, the first one finished last year. Starman 2018, though? Yeah, that came out afterwards, yeah. Okay. But, so 2017 was the Lucy series, though. Uh, yes, that's correct, yes. So I think probably last year, and, you know, I actually did homework for this episode, which you'll see later, but I did not do homework on looking at last year's winners, which or mentions and lists and things like that, which we should have, because yeah. I bet Black Hammer was up at the fucking top, because... We thought it was promising, I think. we, well, we called it. Them... and he'd also had that... Um, you know that limited with the Lucy and um, uh, David Rubin's artwork. David Rubin artwork, and that was fucking amazing, right? That was a series, right? And then he does the second series of Black Hammer, season two, and things start going wrong. 
And they kind of grind to a halt. Yeah. And then the miniseries, the Starman miniseries, was not good. Quite a misfire, yes. And then the Legion of Superheroes. We didn't even, I didn't even read it past the first one. Because they had some off for free comic book day. And I thought, okay, this is cool and poppy. But again, I closed my shop and it fell off the map for me. I never did read it. But I mean, the Black Hammer second season resolved satisfactorily surprisingly enough but it saved it 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 did this the series in a way did the exact same thing that the boys did where it siri wants to talk about this but anyway Uh so the problem with the boys was is that ennis brought in too much comic book shit, like too much reference to other things. And Lemire does the exact same thing. For some reason, you know, Starman gets a a lovely homage, but something else doesn't. Like uh, Sandman gets an homage, but something else doesn't get an homage. It gets like a a gag or a riff. A one-off. Yeah, and it's just like, he doesn't have a tone for these... Um, properties he's um, reimagining. Like, is he reimagining them as gags or is he reimagining them to build this story? And if he'd done a series of one shots, Starman, Sandman, this, that, the other fucking thing, I would have been much longer, yeah. Yes, that would have been fine because you wouldn't have been telling us it was a story. Because that's not what the Lucy series was. The Lucy series was in the Black Hammer universe as drawn by David Rubin. It was not like, oh, we're bringing this other mythology in, this other series Bible in. So it's very, it's a big, it's a big misfire as far as misfires go. But at least the main book is in a place where I want to see where it goes. Right, that's true. Yeah, because they, I think by the time we fell off the map, they had, discovered the source of their problems and trying to, you know, and a lot of honesty was coming out about what the central character's roles actually were. So, um, yeah, he, but again, it was like putting the cart before the horse, you know, you didn't have enough good material. So you, you went out on this mass publishing scheme to get a lot out and perhaps misfired by not being a little too picky about it. You know what I mean? And it's dark horse too, right? It is dark horse. Yeah, and they desperate they do the, is for dark horse stands for desperate. Yeah, I mean the the whole the Hellboy franchise, which actually has pretty good stuff on it. If you're into that material, you know that, that when you have the good creators and you have a plan, it kind of works. Even though I never, I always hated Hellboy. I always liked all the related shit. Right. You know, um, it's almost like they got too much. Oh, we got we can get a franchise going, but it's too early. We don't have enough good stuff to morph into a franchise. Right. Let's put it, and I think Black Hammer has been optioned for something, movie or TV, so... Well, of course it has. Of course it has. Like, Dark Horse needs something to hit, and it needs it to hit heavy, and... ironically, they were probably the most aggressive, other than Marvel, at trying to get movies and properties and yeah. licenses. They've always... And they've developed a lot of movies, like The Mask, and, uh, you know, they had their hands in a lot of things. Yeah movie thing, you know? Very ironic, to say the least. So, okay. Um, Sweet Angel, you probably don't know that one, I don't think. I don't You're know not. this one. 
Yeah, Jim Rugg and Brian Maruka are a couple of uh, collaborators for many years. They're on the indie scene, and they got this character named Street Angel, which they managed to publish. I think in, in 2018, they put out two one-shot specials of very different aesthetic backgrounds. Like One was kind of like a manga-esque story that they put together under the influence of manga. And then the other one I could actually see as an edgy kid's book because people die in it because Street Angel is about violence, kicking ass, and beating up gangs. But it's not so incredibly visceral or realistic that a younger person couldn't read it. And they entertain. I don't know if you remember the wonderful book called Aphrodisiac that made fun of black genre uh, films, but it was it was one of the funniest books of the year, and these two teamed up on it. And, and uh, Street Angel makes an appearance in that book, and it's pretty hilarious. And I have to, I have to give these guys kudos. They don't give up, and they keep trying all these different approaches with Street Angel as a character for different types of books, and it works. They're a good craftsman, and they know what they're doing. So if you ever see Street Angel, definitely take a look at it because it's one of the more aesthetically pleasing indie books out there. Okay. All right, now we go into a couple, now we go into depression area here. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, uh, the complete killer came out, which was God seven or eight hundred pages. It was indeed. It was. Was uh, uh, it Munoz and Sampoio? A couple of that, that's uh, Alex Sinner. Killers, Mats and Jackamon. Oh, thank you. Yes, I should have been looking at my so, notes. So, um, I just realized we talked about this at length on another a previous episode. So, I mean, it, it's a good book, but. It's a good book, but um, it goes on too long. It kind of has a really dumb ending. They try. It goes on too long. Like yeah, it, and it was. I, I didn't have a problem with the ending because it had to end somewhere. But it's yeah. utter nihilistic attitude. Like I mean, the, the the guy says, you know, we all we're all a fish in the sea, and we only have our place, and we are born to devour or be devoured by others. And it's a very simplistic but very nihilistic premise. But along the way, you learn a lot about what it is to be a uh, professional killer. I right. think that was the thing was. So it held me along for that. But it's dark, depressing stuff. Yeah. Been... It, um, I just feel like it never quite, it never quite achieves what it needs to to be 700 pages long. Yes. Like, yes. it's a damn good read. Like, but, yeah. Okay. Those darn Europeans and their need for albums. Pretty much, know. right. So um, anyway, all right. Alex Sinner, which is by Munez and Sapoyo, Volume 2. Volume 2. Well, volume 1 came out the year before, and Andrew and I praised it. We thought it was one of the most innovative series that we'd ever seen, and it uh, climaxes in this absolutely beautiful 65-page yeah. story that's just all over the place and shows a developing pair of talents willing to go anywhere for a comic book story. Uh, volume two shows a continued trend on their interest to do a kind of stream of consciousness riff on today's society using their character. Yeah. Loses a lot of story structure along the way. So you're really kind of, it's, it's a labor reading it at times. Yes. And I don't see that for someone who's put so much work into it. So I'll labor through it anyway, you know. Uh, but Alex Sinner, even though it's a very challenging piece of work, it kind of loses its audience with its uh, creator's single focus on what they're trying to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, it, they become a lot less focused on the character and a lot less focused on the idea of doing detective noir in the 70s and 80s. And instead, I mean... It, it lost it. 
yeah. by the end, it's let's just say it appears to have come out on the last story is a nine eleven conspiracy story, and it's just kind of like, yeah, this doesn't, this is not a satisfactory finish to the character. No, they, they, and it. They, they wanted, I guess, I guess. But it also know. doesn't read like it was supposed to be the last Alex Sinner story, so it's just a very strange finish to it. And I mean, like, they lose the character entirely for the last story. It's... Yeah, he becomes sublimated in the stories. He's just he's just like a little piece of things to hold some strings of narrative together. Yeah, That's a- so it's, it's very weird. Um, and it's a, a big letdown. But, I mean, it's still excellent work it's just not it's not but, what volume one was right volume one hit the high point at the end of volume one yeah. and two shows a refocused uh direction of the creators it's not necessarily something that gives a shit whether it's got a reader or not you yeah, know and the second one the stories are a lot more sporadic because they're collections published yes. over years and it feels like maybe the first one was published over 10 years and the second one was published over 15 or so. And yeah. There, like, at some point, like, you lose track of whether or not the stories are supposed to be continuous because in the middle of the second volume, there's this huge road trip thing, like yeah. seeing America. And it's just, it's got some nice moments in it, but it's utterly... It doesn't contribute to the narrative no. at all. So yeah. it's unfortunate, but anyway, um, well, when, when they say by, you know, it, it is the volume ones and two are the complete work of right. Alex. And if you're a real hardcore comic fan, you're going to read, read, right? Exactly. Although volume two is the tougher of the reads, obviously. Yes. Excellent. Um, now guess what? Never got released digitally. And I didn't get a chance to get it. And we feel bad. We'll have to make it up to poor. Wait, you haven't read it either. I have I, I put it somewhere in my room and I can't find it. Son of a here. bitch. We're talking then, about Fielder by Kevin Huzinga. And it's like self-fucking published. It's not from Drawn and Quarterly. That's why it's nowhere. Like I found it on some obscure fucking website. Oh, that God, has a that's picture too- of the guy's thumb in the product shot. Because he's holding oh, it up. You can't even buy it from Huzinga. Holy shit. Yeah. So hopefully Fielder. I'll I'll look for it. I'll find it. I'll read it. And then I'll send it to you. (laughs) Hopefully this shit gets collected in the eventual Game G's collection that he's been talking about for years. That Drawn and Quarterly probably bothers him about twice a week. But anyway. So Fielder, if you got to read it, I bet it was good, but I didn't. I know. I, I felt bad. I was like, I got caught up. I got caught up with my writing, and I had a certain focus set of comics. I lost track of Fielder, and then I said, "Holy shit, Fielder's on the list!" And I couldn't find the thing in time for our podcast. Sadly, and uh, well, we apologize to Kevin Huzinga. We do love his work, and we will follow through on it. Yeah. That's for sure. Okay. Uh, League of External, Did you get a chance to dabble with these? I haven't read what was I haven't read Black Dossier. I haven't read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen since series two. Yeah. That's yeah, I how could... behind I am. Okay. Well, I have not read the Black Dossier because that is something that takes an awful lot of time. Right. 
Alan Moore has a, a tendency to structure comics like formal puzzles sometimes, and that's what League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I think, has become. Because when you try to read uh, the latest one called The Tempest, which I assume is based on The Tempest, he ties in all of the remaining characters in the end-of-the-world type story where they try to figure it all out as story, but it has all these inferences from... James Bond to the Legion of Superheroes to English comic books, and it's all over the fucking place. And it's like if you wanted a challenging Alan Moore read, because I typically have to read these things two or three times just to get the narrative thrust of them. But you know what? I enjoy those sort of things, so it's not so bad. Um, Kevin O'Neill does some great artwork in this. And since Alan Moore is finishing up his career in comics, this is very well one of the last things he's going to publish. So I'm thinking... Well, I got to finish this. I enjoy it. Actually, I enjoy it more because it flows more than some of the other mm. stuff. You know? But you really have to have a background in comic books quite severely. Maybe not just American comic books either. You know what I mean? So it, it's a challenge to the reader. But you know what? Alan Moore at this point, he's earned to do whatever he wants. Right. And I'm cool with that. And I'll finish, I'll finish The Tempest. Let's put it that way. So House Amok, uh, which is another Black Crown... By Chris Sabella and Sean McManus. It might be their only published work. Maybe they published another comic. I'm trying to think. I go over the diamond list and I haven't seen uh, much. We didn't read Euthanauts because we didn't read Euthanauts. Yeah, the first issue just didn't do anything for me. I couldn't. So, uh, House of Muck, uh, McManus. That's I love nice. Sean. I know. Yeah. Um, the first two issues, so there have been four issues. Um, it didn't grab me till the third issue. Yes. Third issue grabbed me, and now I'm like... I don't it's know. like light, puffy, vertigo books. Yeah. You go along, right. along for the ride. And, um... You know, Sabella's very structured. I think I remember that about him from other things he's done. He's never made a list before, I don't think. Um, and I've never finished one of his books before this one. <laughs> Oops. Uh, well, no, I mean, he's, he's very structured, but he's very obvious in some ways. And I feel like the reason it takes this book so long to catch on, um, and that might, it might be totally fine in a trade. Um, yes. It takes long enough for, like, sort of the sort of plotting character development for the art to sort of surpass that for you to get yeah. comfortable enough with the protagonist, um, in the art that you can sort of, you're, you're invested enough then to give a shit about the, um, story. You, you have to credit Sean McManus with like creating a, an entire world, like the, the family. Yeah. It's, are they are they crazy or are they actually in on the smart thing of things? You don't really know, but that's the point. And uh, he creates this whole world, and I think it keeps it moving for Stavala because he yeah. has a tendency to lost on sidetracks a little bit. Once he did that assassination assassinistas with Beto Hernandez, no, he didn't do that. Did that one? Okay, I'm trying to remember what he wrote. Was he? Was he backup stuff? You said I don't think yeah. he did any of the series because okay. I I don't read Christopher Savoy. Bella Comics intentionally, yeah. so I, I would have remembered him. Yeah. But anyway, House of Muck, that gets honorable mention, probably first because it's a Black Crown book, but secondly because, hey, 
they don't publish DC doesn't publish comics like this anymore. Yeah, so like read, Sean, it's a good Sean McManus book. Like it's working out to be a good Sean McManus book. I was reading it just like what was I? Why wasn't Sean McManus on Snaggletooth or Snagglepuss, for example? Good idea, right? Right. Well, the guy it was decent, you know. But like it was I a meant- totally different style on that. Yeah. Yeah, McManus could have got away with the cartoon characters. Yeah. Remember when we first saw this guy, he did that Alan Moore issue of Swamp Thing that featured the Bogo characters? That was like one of his first published works. Yeah, it was just really good stuff. Yeah. So anyway, uh Weapon Brown. Weapon Brown. I'm gonna I'm gonna grab a beer and you start on that over with you. Keep okay. going. So uh Weapon Brown is uh there's a new collection out. It's by a guy named Jason Youngbluff. Vernon actually wrote a very long post about it, since Vernon's the only one who gets around to publishing posts these days on Comics Fun. Well, just finished the long run of something we'll talk about later. Yeah, and then, um, so yeah, Weapon Brown is a riff on, well, it's a post-apocalyptic riff on... um, comic strip characters. I don't think there's anything outside of comic strip in there. Syndicated comic strip, like in the news. Syndicated. Where Weapon Brown is actually Charles Brown, who has been turned into a cyborg killer. And it's, uh... The first story sort of does the Peanuts thing and goes into the future version, the future dystopian versions of Peanuts characters uh, to pretty good success on a lot of them and then the second one it brings in little orphan annie it brings in huey from the boondocks it brings popeye. In popeye it brings in uh calvin and Hobbes. quite a I mean, bit a fact right the right. boss from dilbert um and there's shit you don't even get because when right. you read his letter he tells you all the ones you missed so I mean, there's a lot in there, and it's uh, it's more of like an adventure, just a Weapon Brown adventure in this a Mad Max type adventure, really. And it's weird because it, <laughs> it does have so little to do with peanuts. Oh yeah, right. It's still a good action story. There, when he does get around to doing a big action issue, so to speak, uh, chapter, it's fantastic. Like that all action thing at the end is paced wonderfully. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole the whole big spectacular end of the movie, as it were, yes. or whatever. Yeah, and and characters start sacrificing themselves for the greater good. And, you know, one thing about and I mentioned in my review is Jason Youngblood self published all these comics. I think there was I don't know multiple, maybe a dozen issues of Weapon Brown, but over the three hundred fifty four hundred pages you got in this big massive phone book graphic novel, is you see his talent develop so much that he overwhelms the homages of the ones he's imitating, like, I don't know, uh, Neil Adams and Mike Mignola and uh, the Wolverine artist, Frank Miller, uh, just so many things he tries, and, and he just incorporates them seamlessly in this utterly bloodletting, destructive tale of survival on post-nuclear Earth with cartoon characters who are trying to Went over the world and the mechanization of the evil syndicate that wants to rule everything. Very simplistic, but so very well done. Very, very well done. All right, here we go. Best yeah. of 2018. The best of 2018, which is the stuff we agree upon pretty much is just what you must read. Let's put it that way. Yeah. If, you, if you don't read these comics, you're not a comic fan. First up, 
a comic Vernon didn't read when it came out, even though he could have. Could have, yeah. I, I could read all the comics when they came out in the old days. But he, yeah. you, you could have read it when it came out in the old days, the first one, right? And you chose I, not to. I think I wrecked the first two series, yes, yes. Resident Alien, Alien New York by Peter Hogan, Steve Parkhouse, the fourth in the series? Uh, fourth or fifth, yeah. Fourth one of those. fifth yeah. miniseries, and the next one is the last one. Yeah, Resident Alien goes to New York. Yeah, yeah, go figure. I mean, he gets out of his rural area. I mean, you and I have talked about the series for years, about how it's a great story that needs to be a television show because it is so simple and so direct and uh this uh alien lands on earth and he has to hide and he imitates this uh was a small town doctor and he fits in with the humans due to some innate power he has to disguise himself and he learns i mean these are like they're human stories they're not like uh science fiction it's like an alien who exists among typical whodunits like somebody gets murdered Stuff like that. So, but it, what was your joke about that? It, it, it could be like an alien murder she wrote without right. Angela. I think that was your joke, wasn't it? I don't know, but it's a good one. So we'll both take credit. And we'll for find it. out because they turned it into a TV show finally. So no, and, and it's so low budget. We just couldn't figure out like why somebody hadn't done it a couple years no. ago. But Resident Alien uh, finished up Alien New York. Where he, he's he's trying to find out more about people like him who landed on Earth, and he meets another alien in New York City, which is pretty good. Yeah. That worked. Yeah. Okay. Uh, was this really 2018? Did it finish up in 2018? Yeah, it did. Believe it or not. Yeah, oh, early, it's early. It's been a long year. Yes, hasn't has it? <laughs> ah, Punisher, the platoon, Garth Ennis, and Goran Parlov is you know, yeah perfect. It's yeah. perfect. Yeah, if you like. Well, again, these are. We like a wide variety of material, and this is very violent about Frank Castle, the Punisher's what first tour of duty as a commanding officer yes. in Vietnam. Great stuff, combined with Ennis's love of war and factual information about what went on, and you incorporate Frank Castle and his ragtag band of Vietnamese guys thrown over in the middle of the jungle in you know 1965 or whatever. It's great stuff, man. It's just, it kind of. Ennis's ability to do this with a, a mainstream property is, I think, unparalleled. Swamp Thing was never this mainstream. Nowhere near. Even though it did have two movies. It did have two movies, um, which one of them was definitely better than either Punisher movie. Uh, yeah. But... Oh, there have been three bad Punisher movies. Anyway, so Ennis's ability to do this, I think, surpasses anybody else. There is no comparison with... Nobody's ever taken a character like Ennis did with the Punisher and turned it into something so ambitious and while still sticking to the... Uh, character conceits like nobody's ever done anything like this right i mean no one we, we, we've said the, the 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 punisher is is garth ennis's bitch and there's nobody that writes the punisher any better than him i mean he knows how to take that vehicle as a catalyst and just run with it and the stories in some ways at the very end of them they're almost transcendental when you see the endings of all of them and they're just now this is the second one of him in vietnam 
about a guy who's writing a book on Frank Castle in yeah. the future, right? And he manages to pick up three or four of their in surviving. The yeah, in the present. And they talk about Frank's first tour of duty as a commanding officer and in the middle of the jungles. The last time was in the Max series, right? Yes, that's okay. right. But, I mean, this is... This fucking comic made me cry. Yeah, it's it's heavy shit. It really is. I mean... Uh, you, you you can look at the situation of many Vietnam soldiers and, and feel bad, but it takes a good writer to incorporate them in a story which has a fictional cartoon character that is essentially an assassin vigilante nowadays, you know? Right, like, yeah. It, it is so much more developed. Did you see Punisher Season 2 yet? Yeah. Okay. Well, the way they end that is just so simplistic as far as, as, far as Ennis has taken the castles. Yeah character since then you know i i just like oh wow we're just like ugh. and i I look at just do the end of shit man you know you own it just do the end of shit it's a hundred times better you know yeah but anyway so yeah ennis punisher uh garth ennis's punisher is you know the hamlet of comic books yeah that's a good way to put it lots of death lots of blood but it's all there for you you know Again, it's it's great Shakespeare for comic books, no doubt about that. All right, let's. An odd thing that we really want to like, yes, but doesn't come out, and it's we made it some of the best of the year because they published some of the best books together this year, and we felt bad, you know. The damned nine. Yeah, it was no ten. No, no. Colin Bond and Brian Hurt have been collaborators for many years. And The Damned has kind of stopped, started its public publishing schedule, and it came out with a three or four ass-kicking issues in 2018, and then it just fell off the face of the earth. And I'm sure a lot of it is due to lack of response. Right. You know, it's the way indie comics go, and I get it. But, Christ, this is like one of the best books on the stage. I mean, so... Okay, so the publishing history of The Damned is, is this was their first big book together, and it was from Oni, right? I think so. That's some of the fucking problem right there. But right. Sorry. Right. Sorry, Oni, but yeah, it's your no fault. Um, it came out. It was like a three-issue series. It was, it was really good. And then they went and did other stuff. Um, Hurt was far more successful than Bun was without Hurt. And then they did a second Damned series, which was all right. Right, right. And then they started doing The Sixth Gun, which I still need to read in its entirety. And but, it took, what, five or six years yeah, to do that. And then that culminated in them getting a TV pilot that didn't get picked up, and that sort of, like, ended enthusiasm. Yes, and then they came back with Damned, and the first three or four issues of it, the first story arc, is the best the Damned's ever been. Like, it's been, it yeah. was phenomenal. And then the well, second story arc. Oh. Yeah. They, they went up a level. Second story arc, on the other hand, was a reprint of the second series with color tones, which was okay. Like, it was okay. It read better. It fit. It fit. It read better in the series. But then nine was their like return. And it, it it's like a done in one with one of the characters and it sets up what's coming. 
and then nothing's come. Right, nothing. It fell off the face of the earth. So we, we felt bad that as a comic we enjoyed so much, both from a personal level and aesthetically, and it was just set to go to those heights and then just fell off the face of the earth. What a tragic story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so next up is the unexpected success um, Maestro's. Maestro. Yeah. Maestro, yeah, the Ma- Maestro, yeah, the Maestro by Steve Scrossi, who made his living drawing Spider-Man and Cable for Marvel and then got sucked up by the Wachowski brothers at that time to uh, do the, um, what's the name of that trilogy of films they're known for? Matrix. With that? Matrix, yeah. So he, he gets back in the comics full force with this miniseries, or seven or eight issues, about the son of the wizard of all things. And he plays it for humor, black humor all the way through. And who knew that Steve Scrosi could do like a great comedy about a self-centered, selfish, nebbish boy whose mother actually had a liaison with the wizard of all wizards. And now has come back for his, uh, what do you call that? Inheritance as yeah. it were. This works. And Steve Scrosi's artwork is just scrumptious, filled with detail, imaginative costumes, fantasy settings, death, Sex, it's it's all there. It's the whole package. So let's put it that Another way. one that Vertigo should have been publishing. Oh, can you imagine how many copies this would have sold if Vertigo had uh, published oh, and pushed it? Right. And it wasn't that bad, okay? It didn't, like, it was kind of sacrilegious in ways, but not in a way that DC couldn't handle, right. you know? Like, you know, it wasn't like Jesus was stoned or whatever. Right. Jesus wasn't even in it, I don't think, was he? Maybe for a quick cameo, but that would have been yeah. it, yeah. So why they did why this languished being published by image, I don't know. I mean I'm sure it sold all right, but could have done so much better. So much you better. Know, so much better. Trade'll be magnificent. Yes. But one of those where you're gonna suffer for not having an oversized trade. Uh yeah, that's true. The artwork is just really nice. It'd be nice to have at least a magazine size yeah. or something like that. So I didn't read this. Harold County finished up. Uh Colin Bunn. Yeah. Now, Colin Bunn, even though he works a lot with Brian Hurt, got gigs at Marvel of some absolutely horrible stuff. X-Men, all that stuff. Just possibly, you know, he'll look back at that and say it was very lucrative, but that was like the worst part of my writing career. Um, he did Harold Connie with uh, artist Tyler Crook, who's a kind of a watercolor painter about the story, but this young girl who's like a second generation witch. And we're not talking about through birth. We're just talking about through uh, reincarnation. And it takes place in the South, and it is ultimately creepy with all its swampy Louisiana backgrounds and stuff like that. And I thought it was a really good horror story that lasted, what was it, 31, 32 issues, if I remember correctly, and it came to a conclusion. And I could easily see that as a movie of some sort. Mm-hmm. sort of, you know, and uh, it was the, the whole package. While it wasn't something on Alan Moore's league as far as writing is concerned, it was very convincing, and the characters were all pretty cool, and her fellow townies and her re- her reanimated parents, really creepy, uh, was uh, very touching. Some of the stories, a couple of them actually almost brought tears to my eyes, so they were pretty good. Yeah, oh, I like that. Oh, says Andrew. Big sentiment. I wish that I am. But highest, uh, excuse me, Harrow County, it hit all the bases, so... Definitely look into that in trades if you like horror. Not Stephen King horror, but horror. Let's put it that way. And then, actually, another Holy Shit, it's IDW book. Yeah, another Holy Shit, it's not a Vertigo book. By guys that worked at Vertigo for, what, 10 years each or something, maybe more. Together, no less. 
Yeah. All right. Highest house, which is Mike Carey and Peter Gross, um, who've both had success together and success apart, doing um, sort of a medieval fantasy, very light on the fantasy, more just magic, medieval magic knights and shit like that but um very pared down uh, as far as fantastical elements and it's an oversized book uh so carrie does these his 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 art style his composition style his page composition style is influenced by sort of medieval um art Illustrated texts. Illustrated texts, just placement of um, placement of panels as well as compos- or, uh, sort of panel composition. It's just gorgeous. It's a gorgeous fucking book. And well research. Yeah. They did six issues of it and it ends with hope somebody fucking buys this because otherwise we don't get to do another one. And you're just like, but I want more. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. If Vertigo had published this, well, it's hard to say because uh, Mike Carey's had a lot of lengthy things, including the Unwritten, okay, mm-hmm. which was a long one. And then prior to that, he did Lucifer, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. for Vertigo. So he's got a lot of world-building experience. And this kind of like, I, I hesitate to call it medieval, but it's like a medieval setting for this young boy who becomes in debt to a dark god that inherits highest house, which is like a castle family that he lives in, and he's a slave. And Mike carries attention to, like, history and and, and serfdom and power and magic are all just so well-researched re- or made up out of whole cloth, right. I don't know. But he incorporates so much of um, American, or I should say medieval history in this book and the story about a young serf who is working his way up and it's just very convincing material. I mean, you're just involved with it. And uh, it's to Mike Carey's credit that he can invent all this shit. And it's up to Peter Gross to just, like, draw it in such an involving manner that you want to read more. You know, I mean, every issue of The Highest House, I'd have to say, it was, like, one of the most anticipated comics that ever came out. Like, you always want that new issue. Like, holy shit, there's a new issue out. I got to go get it, like, now, you know. But, uh you know, that, that that would be another good one that wouldn't take too much money anyway. Let's put it that way. No. No. no not too funny. I feel like... I feel like comics, indie comics in particular, have gotten a lot better at sort of measuring how far they need to go to be a viable media property. Yes, it's all part of the writer's, how do you say, um, repertoire, you know. It's not like it used to be where you had just desperate shit from Boom. Right. Or Happen, Marvel or DC. Yeah. So, all right, so next up is Infinity 8 by Louis Trondheim and various artists which I alluded to during our discussion of Barbarella because this is the comic that Barbarella isn't. Um, European, no doubt. European, uh, law, gonna be 
this. So the series is eight alternate realities of special intergalactic agents trying to save the ship Infinity Eight. Right? Isn't the ship's name Infinity Eight? Right. It's like it's like it's it, 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 the, the commander of the ship and the first captain are the only constants. Right. They are just their names and their visual look consistently while the protagonist female, who's a militaristic police type figure in each episode, has different backgrounds, but it's still the same strong female character in each of these three issue arcs. Wonderfully portrayed by to, uh, by Trondheim, uh, using his formal attitude towards constructing a story. Like I said, eight different stories of three issues each. And you know what's great about the first three arcs is they outdo one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were real skeptical of the second arc because it had the uh, Hitler final solution as a main plot, but he manages to work with that yep. when, when Hitler decides human race isn't even what he needs anymore. And the third one with the young lady who's the high emissary of a religious person has to go question her religious duty and her perspective on reality when in pursuit of the last piece of a god that she worships or something like that. It's really heavy shit, you know? Yeah. But it's all in this real light, mainstreamy cartoon type style, you know, and easy to digest. And my God, these things, I think I've read every issue like three times each. And it just, it holds up wonderfully on that. It's just amazing. And so luckily it is not in a U.S. original. It's a reprints, translated reprints uh, from U- the U.K. So it'll, it'll probably finish. Is the uh, I, well, it's, it's put out by Lion Forge. Who the hell knows who they are? Yeah. But they have standards anyway. Yeah. Uh, so next up, uh, it was Dark Horse, wasn't it? Vinegar Teeth. Uh, Vinegar Teeth was a Dark Horse book. Yeah. Yeah. So Vinegar Teeth impressed us. Troy Nixie and who? Damon Gentry, I believe the the credit was. Later, perhaps I'm not sure. I yeah. Don't know. So I mean, it's this very uh, sort of noirish. But gross slime monster detective apocalyptical yeah. comedy. Yeah. Yeah. With with like a Godzilla-esque monsters and shit. Yeah. yeah like it's crazy. It it goes all over the place and it doesn't get real deep, but it's just so utterly convincing. From the creators, they they do these totally realistic, like they believe that this guy's a cop and he looks ridiculous. He's got this huge brimmed hat and it's all very cartoony inventiveness by Troy Nixie, who's probably one of the weirdest cartoonists alive. And uh, his brand new partner on the police force that happens to be uh, an alien from outer space that may or may not be killing people or whatever. We, we're, that's part of the plot and what's the ultimate goal. And, you know, it's like what six issues or five issues of total yeah. fucking weirdness. But it all adds up and works, especially with the big ending. You know, I mean, this 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 one would work as a pretty good animated film if somebody could do it do it right. Yeah. This is the kind of thing that Dark Horse sh- should be doing. This is not a Vertigo book. This is a Dark Horse book because with Dark Horse going back to Dark Horse Presents, they had a lot of room for less realistic artists than say vertigo did vertigo would be the complete opposite for 
with some exceptions like Sean McManus. And right. It was very that radical. Yeah. So yeah, ver, vinegar teeth is what Dark Horse should be doing. Um, what they're born to publish, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that vinegar teeth is just really weird, wild, woolly ride through somebody's apocalyptic vision, and it just kind of works. You know, yeah. it's like thing that works. All right, and moving on to another best of 2018 is a book that didn't get a lot of attention because, again, it was like a French book translated into English, but it was Hercules' Wrath of the Heavens. And I think I was reading some of their critics. So I'm going to give them credit when they when they said, you know, I didn't, I wasn't looking for a retelling of the Hercules mythology in the far flung future, like it existed in Star Wars days. And I'm like, but even it's like great. And I'm like, that's true. It, it works exactly because of that. And he still has his gladiatorial gear and shit, but it takes place in the high flung future. And he's got his twelve tasks, of which we see a couple of them in his first arc. And I'm going to say. This guy, Lucky, who's credited for artwork, is possibly one of the most technically proficient artists I've ever seen. You talk about realism and spaceships and all that stuff. There's very few artists that can compete with him on this level. And it reminds me of like heavy metal in the old days when they had really convincing science fiction stories. And then incorporating the Hercules mythology into this mess is just great and it's all pulled off wonderfully so that's another one if you like this kind of shit hercules wrath of the heavens is a great titan book by the way and uh worth your time if you like such things so more Beautiful. successful than odyssey yeah yeah <laughs> sorry folks i was just mocking that matt fraction wasted what a year of his life doing a futuristic retelling of the odyssey because he wanted to do it with women did he even do it with women? Yeah, women were in all the major roles. He flip-flopped the roles. The women were the protagonists. They really? Yeah, that was the point of that. But it was in the future, too. Yes, yes. It was very heavy. But, you know, he just he just got bogged down. He never, again, uh, no editor. Uh, let's write it for 12 issues. Let's put it out even less sporadically every issue. And it is, uh, uh, I'm out of here. All right. Matraction, you forget with him and Jeff fucking Parker... These two guys did some of the best in comics from like 20, 29 to 2013, 14. These were the guys that yes. should be on this list four times, and they're not. But anyway. I guess they, they must have found, got other jobs. Maybe they're flipping burgers. I don't know. Anyway, anyway we mentioned Mike. Strike. Which, yeah, I mean, go figure. I mean, Michael Fife, the creator of Copra, does a gig for Rob Liefeld, of all people, okay? And it's so funny that the image crew are so much more successful when they hire these artists that grew up reading their shitty comics when they were kids. Right. Like Michael Fife, in the back matter, expresses his utter love for Bloodstrike, which people of Andrew and my age found utterly incomprehensible and a waste of trees. Let's put it mildly. Yeah, not like incomprehensible, like we couldn't follow the comic. Incomprehensible, like why the fuck would this sell a single copy? Like, profit, too. Uh, yeah, even are, Yeah, this is like the shit that even Rob Liefeld knows is bad because yeah. remember when he spent years trying to sell the Alan Moore scripts to Supreme and was like, 
dude, you can get another artist to do it. Like you could redraw this with somebody good because, That's right. you know, we all know what happens when Chuck Austin draws Miracle Man. But anyway, oh, that's a dent. And Bloodstrike was a three issue miniseries. It was, but it's a homage to the entire Bloodstrike yeah. culture that was which i had no idea because i never read this yeah books. i know and it's just like you pick it up like he's good enough of a storyteller that you pick it up from his and it's just crazy violent great yeah. just it's just weird it's really weird there's you know a big okay so i i i think blood strike was a t- a riff on the tough mutants that Marvel was doing, right? Yeah. I mean, it takes homage material and it transcends it by making it more about itself than anything else. And they have a big fight scene in a convenience store parking lot. I think it is like, and the pacing of it's great. There's a, but I mean, like that's the thing about Fife just as his, his uh, storytelling ability is he's able to do this really tense issue with, this stupid property and it's just like it, it felt very much like that first issue of um x-men deadly Gen- deadly genesis or whatever the fuck that's called where yeah. it's like you have these guys who grew up on shitty comics but it didn't affect the fact that they would become great comic book storytellers so when they go back to try to homage this shit it ends up being good because they're good. Even if the fucking content is shit, like X-Men. You, you get involved with it. I mean, that, yeah. not like, there aren't anything but throwaway characters, but Michael Fife just revels in the fact that these are just violent symbols of comic book storytelling. Yeah. That play it, with. Just, it just works beautifully. Well, I'm glad you got a chance to see how like his painterly attitude towards comics yeah. works. No, uh, Copra is on the list. Copra, Fabulous. My, I, I'm making my list, everyone, that I don't know if I've ever mentioned before, but whenever we do these year-end books, I always, or year-end episodes, I always make these long lists of comics to read, which I have not read, so that is a, and I said that I had a 2018 reading goal, which we'll yeah. talk about what happened to that in a bit, but 2019, I, I have a reading goal and I have some things in place and I've got, if it, you can read along with me as I go through all these great comics Vernon mentioned that I didn't read. But anyway, Copra will be on that list. But next, let's get to uh, Young Francis, which we were very excited about about a year ago. But we were excited about this guy when he had a different name and published. You were the- excited about him. I didn't know who he was. Oh, did you You didn't see any of them? Well, you know what? It wouldn't have been in your neck of the woods because they were more limited edition independent comics yeah. that they bought a thousand copies of. And I picked up one in my search in a Bohemian Chicago neighborhood or something like that. Um, anyway, I can't remember what he used to call himself for Popats. But anyway, Hartley Lynn, who did these stories in Popats of a young lady called Young Francis. And that's the collection here, Young Francis, um, about a young lady who's trying to in a modern world, you know, and, and, and she worked for an insurance company, I think it is. Something like that. Paralegal for insurance company. I don't know. It's just it's such a pedestrian story, but he just grabs us and takes us into her life and her roommate. And it's done with this really great 
formal cartooning style that reminds you of like the 1960s and 50s with the attention to perspective yeah. and they go to a grocery store and he draws every fucking can on the shelf and I just I don't know I, it was it was hypnotic and you know I'm a 57 year old man and if I want to read a story about a what 25 year old young lady that's trying to make it in an insurance firm or a lawyer firm or what lawyer law firm I'm like wow I never would have picked up this fucking comic if I hadn't read them in Popads or mm. something you know? And I, it, yeah, and best of the year. Yeah, and it's uh, who put that out? Was it Fanographics or Drawn and Quarterly? That might have been Drawn and Quarterly. I'm not okay. sure. Um, yeah, and I mean, I this is a book that Vernon talked about it, and then I got it from the library, and I've since bought it. Yes, I mean, it you want it in your collection. It's a really fucking good comic. Like, yeah. <laughs> the slice of life stories don't get more interesting about the mundane. Yeah. You know, there's there's nothing radical that happens in young Francis's life, but the road they get there is just like totally obsessive when you're reading this thing, yeah. you know. Uh and then you're gonna talk about the Dave Sheridan book. And we'll finish off our best of twenty eighteen list with uh the Dave Sheridan TP by Fanographics by Mark Bernstein, who edited in. Rarely is a homage life biography book done with so much of the people that knew him. Like Mark Bernstein collects all these stories about Dave Sheridan from the time he was growing up in a Cleveland neighborhood to being a young bohemian to going to school, to meeting hippies, moving out to California, being part of the, the second generation of underground cartoonists. And it's all lavishly illustrated by all this collected art that everyone seems to have. It's it's so complete that Dave Sheridan is a second-generation underground cartoonist who worked probably most well-known for his work with uh, Gilbert Sheldon on the fabulous Fury Freak Brothers. And uh, after that, he continued on, and he was known for a couple of big ones called Dealer McDope and Tales of the Leather Nun, which was a personal favorite of mine going through puberty, I might add. And uh, just wonderful stuff in his entire life. He died much too soon. I think he was in his mid-30s, and he died from a brain hemorrhage after being diagnosed with cancer. Very tragic stuff. And he was married uh, to a young lady he lived with for many, many years. And uh, the child was born after he died, like eight months after he died. Unbelievably sad. But the whole story of Dave Sheridan as an artist is great. He's a psychedelic cartoonist. And not only that, he's a great illustrator because he took a lot of time to vividly illustrate psychedelic and mind-altering trips within his stories and stuff like that. And his sense of humor incorporated and all that is just truly one for the ages. And this book just takes like 50 friends and just throws their their stories about him when they're living together in a bohemian dump to living in San Francisco and getting lost on this bridge and all this kind of stuff. How do you get lost on a bridge? That's a good story, but you have to read that in there. But probably one of the better biographical books on a nice underground comic book artist. So Dave Sheridan by Mark Bernstein was definitely on my tw best of 2018 lists. So there you have it. That is like our favorite books of 2018. Yes, indeed. And uh, we're just getting started. Yeah, we still have a lot to talk about. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. we, we, you talk about getting behind books, but that wasn't necessarily your fault because you did a complete rereading of all the first volume of Love and Rockets. I did. I read all 50 issues of Love and Rockets, uh, plus the fill-in issue. Not the, it wasn't a fill-in, I guess. Uh, but they collected the... Um, I'll get to that, actually. So, 
First, why don't you talk about the Love and Rockets magazine, which we, we, we're going to talk about it on honorable mentions, but Vernon's going to prelude and give me a chance to look at my notes here. Right, right. Uh, the Love and Rockets magazine is the latest incarnation of the Brothers Hernandez, which would be uh, Beto and Jaime. And uh, they switch formats every once in a while to shake it up a little bit, get some attention. And the latest iteration is kind of a magazine-sized book, which kind of reminds you of the original Love and Rockets format. And it's really nice when I read Andrew's reviews of the first volume and the two brothers starting in comics and watching their talent grow and, and seeing the characters develop into something marvelous. And now how they are as mature creators in their 60s and how they approach comics and the same characters they invented in different ways to entertain themselves and keep themselves uh, vested in the uh, activity, as it were. And it is a different beast, and it has different concerns, especially Beto. Um, but it shows their continued development as active cartoonists in the American scene. And even now, these are, while, while you'd say this is a different type of Love of Rockets, I think that those two have fully cemented themselves as two of America's greatest cartoonists with this stuff being, I'll, I'll cut it and say, well, it, it, it's active and they've never wasted any of their time. Let's put it that way. Right. All right. So here we go. Now the first volume of love and rockets ran 50 issues. Um, the first one came out and it was all fanographics except for the first issue, which was self published by the three brothers at that time. Um, Beto, Jaime, and Mario. And I think that came out in 81. And when Vernon gets back to the damn podcast, because he snuck out, because he knew I was, I, I've got to get back. I hope I'm you got, listening to you. Okay. Uh, the, the self-published one, did you have that? I have it, yes. Yeah. Don't tell anybody. So they, like, it was photocopied, self-published, Love and Rockets 1. 1981 or so but then or it actually might have come out at the beginning of 82 like it did not take them long to find fanographics it did not no, take... saw it, he wanted to reprint it and, and turn it into a 64 page magazine right. and then they also were working for the first few years on a comic called mr x which was very popular at the time but yeah anyway, commercial work commercial but it was commercial work but it was well, they signed up with a Canadian publisher, Bill Marks, to do six issues. Okay. And that was, I think, corresponding because they were already good. So it had been sometime along the beginning. I okay. think they did. Obviously. So anyway, uh, back to Love and Rockets proper, volume one. First issue was September 1982, 50th issue. Last issue was May 1996. Yeah. So they did it for 14 years. Um I actually added up how many pages they did a year, but I did not add up how many pages total the issues add up to. But the book, I mean, they, the first four issues were 68 pages. Mario contributed art to maybe the first two or three. Right. And then he was gone, so it was Beto and Jaime doing roughly 34 pages each. And they, they split it in half exactly, every issue. So, but I mean, not 
you know, Beto would have a long story. Jaime would have three, something like that. It was like right, they both had like 30 pages to deal with, whatever they wanted right, to do, whatever they wanted to do. And then starting with issue five, it went down to 36 pages. And then sort of once a year, there'd be a 44 page or a 52 page, sometimes both of those in one year. Because I wrote all this shit down, Vernon. <laughs> because what I wanted to talk about was the collections. Because the collections eventually get around to collecting the story arcs. So back in 2004, whenever I started reading Love and Rockets, I wanted to read the original 15 collections. Yes. Because that had all the material in it, including the stuff they didn't keep for the later collections, which focused on the Palomar and Locus. Right. And so I wanted to get everything, which included um, a Beto's first long story, which had nothing to do with anything, and it had an early version of Luba, who later shows up as a nightmare version of Luba that one of her kids has, that one of the kids that hates her. So... The first, and then Jaime is very different at the beginning, too, because he's got a lot more sci-fi influences that later go away as he just becomes this sort of soap opera. And the first, Jaime's first locus is also very much more punk than it would get to be later. So, Palomar doesn't show up until the third issue. Beto does other stuff in the second issue, I think. And when Palomar shows up, it is this long story, very different um, than what Jaime's done as far as long stories. But at this point, Jaime's in, uh, trying to do text. He has a long text story at the beginning, too. And so hes they're both like playing a lot with style. Well, Beto does this awesome two-part Palomar story and then jumps ahead by the time Palomar comes back and never returns to that time period. So he never returns to this time period except in flashback and the flashbacks are never sort of directly about this first story. It's very strange. Yeah, that is strange. And it's because and it's noticeable. And what's nice about reading the issues is, is that for a long time they had letter pages and they had promotional, like what's coming up next. And so I think it's, it might even be like issue 20 or something before one of the ads is we finally find out what's going on with Carmen in Palomar yeah. in the present or in the, what is now the present. And it's like, she was the narrator of the first palomar story beto got rid of having her as a narrator but he never got rid of the idea that she was a integral character but he he didn't focus on her when he went into the future so it's like very interesting just how all this stuff how his sort of lens of palomar works what he's going to focus on which characters he's going to focus on um to the point that the defining Palomar story is called Human Di- Di- Disastrophism. 
Deastrophism, yeah. Deastrophism, and it runs roughly from issue 20 to 26. So that's four years into the comic. He starts up this long story arc. It involves Luba. It involves um, other Palomar residents. And basically there's a monkey plague. Um, but that's not really the... the what's going on it's the story of luba's kids fathers and a monkey the monkeys all going crazy around palomar and a serial killer right. so there's a lot going on at once and i remember that i think it's like part two or three i'm like what the hell is this this is the least successful thing beto's done in this comic ever including his like dumb dirty con jokes from like the second issue and then it like immediately turns around and it's this great fucking thing but anyway so vernon got a kick out of um me being not realizing how good the story was going to turn out but that's like roughly in the center of the book and until then beto had done some shorter stories but he'd never done anything this long before at the same time Jaime does <clears throat> what is collected as the death of Speedy Gonzalez, right? Speedy Gonzalez? Well, not Gonzalez, no. <laughs> Speedy, Speedy Gonzalez. Gonzalez is, is he the, the mouse? Did I just... Yeah. Speedy Ortiz, I think it was. Speedy Ortiz. Okay, everybody, you just got to see some uh, <coughs> ingrained racism. So, shit, hey, I, I'm sorry about that. Um I Let me promise take... I won't start singing the Taquito or Taco Bandito song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, bad move on my part. Anyway, but the point is, the reason I don't remember Speedy Ortiz's last name is because he doesn't fucking matter to the death of Speedy. It's about Maggie and her sister. It's about um, Hopi being gone. And so what it actually does establish is... Jaime's now going to avoid everything that he brings up in Locus. He's going to avoid resolving anything. And that actually started a little bit earlier in um, a long story called um, The Missing Women. Yes. Which is about Maggie and uh, Reina Titione, a pro wrestler turned revolutionary, lost. Um in a disaster and it, it it does not wrap things up that needed to be wrapped up that Jaime sort of wraps up in bonus material for collections but never really wants to deal with because he wants to avoid the whole sort of way the series started as mechanics and so then the death of Speedy kicks into this part where Jaime is going to concentrate on the male characters he's introduced, um, Ray and Doyle, who have always lived in this very real world, whereas Hopi and Maggie previously existed in a fantastical world that has gotten real. Like, when Locus, when mechanics start, it's not called Locus, 
when mechanics starts it's not set and it's set in some futuristic ish time where there's still like urban strife and sort of late teen poverty but there's also dinosaurs and rocket ships and shit like that it's really what slapstick humor is a big part of it yeah. too slapstick humor it's a really fucking weird reality and it's really creative and great and he spares all that down and sort of also spares down his artistic style simultaneously but his artistic style goes through really this exploration of a lot of blacks and silhouettes and it's gorgeous gorgeous art and Jaime's art by the end is gorgeous, but it's gorgeous comic stripping. At right. a certain point, he basically becomes what if Peanuts grew up? Is in, in the way that he paces his visual jokes and establishing things, not in this sort of narrative itself, because the narrative then becomes about Maggie and her family, Ray and his girlfriend Danita who'd been a friend of Maggie's Jaime does a two-year jump ahead where it's like the laziest fucking jump ahead you'd ever seen like he has this establishing shot where he's got some of the supporting cast running into Maggie and they're now two years older and they're like we haven't seen you for exactly two years and on this exact spot all you've done has been starting to date this fucking dude and Hopi never came back from her tour. And you get the story of what happens to Hopi much, much later. And it's like, good. But Jaime's avoid... It's like he tries to avoid doing what made Locus Locus, which is Maggie and Hopi for this series. He just wants right. to avoid the hell out of it. Right. Yeah, they're no longer they're no longer a couple. At they're this no point. longer a couple. He's no longer exploring their relationship. Um, Maggie's he, heterosexual, right? Maggie's done being bisexual. Like it's very weird, and it's very intentional, and it's very obvious that he's avoiding things to the point that he even brings in Ray as a little kid having peanuts like adventures, but they're not really peanuts like adventures because they're intense, like childhood adventures, which he, real then, yeah, real peanuts, which he then keeps up that style with some of the kids in the neighborhood later. And it's, it's very weird. And sometimes it's very, very good but it's also very deliberately avoiding what he was doing before. It's, it's interesting to watch them. And at one point you definitely see a point in their artistic development where they develop ideas as long as it interests them. And then when they get bored and they decide to pursue a new thing, you see that almost well, more so with Jaime just to abandon things and it's almost like, well, you know, that's how life is. We don't find the answers to everything, and all the stories aren't completely finished. But I know that we care about the characters, and right. this is what and now, you know what I mean? And they take place in real fucking time all the way through it. Like, one of the great things about Love and Rockets is the characters age yeah. throughout the 25 years, 30 years, whatever it is, you know. So. Opius, but well, yeah, Maggie, too, all the rest of them, they all age, yeah. But then. 
Um, one of the the uh, yeah the big difference between with how Beto changes interests and Jaime changes interests is Beto never has any false alleys. No, it's all very natural too. Right. Beto has these really, by the end of the series, Beto has, basically when he does human dynastic, after human disastrophism, Beto's going to have three more story arcs, basically. He's got one called Poison River, which is uh, Luba's origin. And it's not even collected in the Palomar trade. I checked that. It's collected in the Luba one after that. Okay. So it's like, that's a separate thing. Then he's also got running concurrently to that. He's got something called Love and Rockets 10, which... The story when the kids are emigrating into America and stuff like that, right? But as a side note to this bigger, like, late 80s, L.A. sucks, punk oh, band oh. racism thing. And that's really, that turns out to be great. Yeah, I mean, he up himself, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, he's got those two running concurrently. I would say that um, Love and Rockets is actually more successful than Poison River, just because Poison River goes on for 11-ish issues, I think. Right, his, his romantic interest in Luba feeds that kind of stuff, whereas Love and Rockets is strictly, like, factual, tell yeah. the story. Yeah, yeah, and so Poison River. I want to read the trade because it was he changed it for the trade from these original issues. Oh wow! Advertise that before Poison River even fucking finishes. Wow! They're like, get the trade where it's going to be different, and that's coming soon. That's the preferred artist version. Yeah, so that's the artist cut. So then, um, after that, he's got. Sort of this Palomar and Luba story, but it's more of a Luba story. It doesn't get collected with Palomar, which has got to be weird because they do collect the last Palomar in the Palomar book. But, but they, skip. they skip the establishing thing, which is all about Luba's kids in the States. And one of and Carmen's older sister, who'd never been a big character in the Palomar stories up through human disaster. Physicism. So she's like a new she's she gets a new focus, whereas these other Palomar characters do not. But some of them do. It very much it's very weird that it they sort of change the branding to Luba for these because it still is it relates very much to Palomar. Um and how actually Palomar and what we've seen in that going back to the second or third fucking issue of the comic book. 13 years, or I'm sorry, not 13, 12 years before is informing these characters later. It's awesome. Awesome stuff from Beto um, throughout. Whereas Jaime has his kind of crappy let's wrap it up with the boys arc and tease stuff for Maggie and Hopi that is frustrating because once Maggie and Hopi do get back together, he he very clearly recaptures the magic of the book and then loses it entirely when it's Ray and Doyle getting drunk 
and just being like painfully obvious fucking dudes. And right. it's like they even somebody even says that. Like Doyle's girlfriend is just like, no, he's just being like this painfully obvious dude. And it's like, right, so I don't want to read, you know, another fucking forty-four pages of story with him. Like, I don't give a shit. He's not interesting. But at the same time, in that era, there's also this amazing um Izzy story about her time in Mexico that is this traumatic, traumatizing, terrible look at mental illness. And it yeah. is rending. Yeah. And it's like this done in one in the middle of the fucking like last 20 issues of the book. It has nothing to do with anything. It has nothing to do with anything. The next time you see Izzy, you're just like, holy shit. Well, I guess we didn't really want to see this amazing story Izzy had that's actually better than Maggie's story because Maggie's story is just like, Jaime can't figure out, like, he just, like, has to ruin Maggie's life and he can't figure out a way to do it. Or make it pedestrian or normal or whatever. And it's just like the things, the details he comes up with, you're just like... Well, maybe if you'd uh, revealed all this linearly, it would have worked. But you can't get away with, like, putting this revelation in. And it's, like, it's very weird just how Beto was able to expand on his narrative style. Where Jaime, it, it just gets him in trouble. It right. really just gets him in trouble. And with Jaime, I feel like some of Chester Square is that um, they mustn't have known when he started that arc it was going to um, the series was going to end at 50. That did not seem they announced it the issue before. Really? Yeah, so I feel like he certainly he did not know that he was going to have to do some sort of a wrap up. Okay. When he okay. started the the sort of Maggie trip to Texas, because it has a very perfunctory finish for the entire supporting cast he's introduced. Okay. And it's very weird stuff, um, but still some of it's exceptional. Like that's kind of the thing about this comic is, is that. Even when it's not the best it's ever been, it's still been exceptional. You know, and that's the thing about the Hernandez brothers. I don't know if they could do, like, a truly shitty comic story because it wouldn't entertain them and it wouldn't enlighten them. Like, all through the the run of Love and Rockets, uh, I've always got the impression that they will never, ever do a story that does not interest them that Mm. they want to tell. And I think that's why they jump around so much because – to tell a pure linear path would be to some succeed your story to obvious linearism, you know, and the fact that they make it challenging and back and forth not only challenges them, it challenges us to keep up with it. I mean, yeah. and like you say, you go through this horrible pedestrian period where Maggie was such an interesting character. Now she's like a, a maintenance person at this laundromat and hotel for a while, you know, and it's just, it's, does that happen later? She's not the maintenance person. That's not okay. even her fucking story. It's even worse than, like, I was waiting for that. No, yeah. that was the thing. So back in the day, when, <clears throat> back, in the day right? back in our, back in my youth, back in our youths, when I got the, uh, 
when I was reading the uh, big collections for the first time, which Vernon sold to me, one of them is a Christmas gift to my wife, who then gave it to me. Um, anyway, I was really impressed with how Locust finished. And the thing about reading it in the series without the sort of fill-in material that they included, because a lot of the fill-in material, which is in a... Um, Fanographics collected it in like 19. What is the stuff that appeared in other publications? Other or? stuff that appeared in other publications, but also stuff that they included in the collections. Oh, okay. Penny has a whole story arc in some of these collections. She has whole yeah. adventures that are not in Love and Rockets proper. They're from the Mechanics Color miniseries. Yeah. They were like a backup to fill that out. Right. They and even I, had. A century comic too. Yeah, and they had a penny century comic that continues this. So I think that the momentum of Locus is a lot different in the long collection. It's not because I remember being a lot more satisfied with the conclusion of Locus when I read it then. Like just sort of that transcendent satisfaction of a comics run like if you know what i'm talking about mark miller's last issue of swamp thing it's a magical fucking experience if you don't know what it is you don't know what it is but if you do it's a magical experience and alan moore's run had a similar thing um but not as dramatic as the Elm. Like when it, when fucking Swamp Thing gets back with Abby one of those times, like yeah. when you're actually <laughs> reading a comic smiling because you're so fucking happy that she gets to fucking, <laughs> you know, trip and fuck the Swamp Man. That's how the end of Locust felt to me. The end of 100% by Paul Pope. That's yes. how the end of Locust felt to me when I read it in the trade. It does not feel like that now. When wow. I read Palomar in the collection... I was not as impressed. Wow. Interesting. And now I am, of course, getting to see Bay because Poison River wasn't in there. I don't know if Love and Rockets is in there. Like, the Palomar collection is a lot shorter than the Locust collection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Palomar is, like, massive. I mean, they have to cut somewhere. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, stories weren't always about Locust. Most of Beto's involved Palomar. Right. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, it's just like a very different experience that, and maybe, maybe all the fucking, um, maybe all the, uh, Ray and Doyle shit is in Palom, is in Locus, but it does not, it doesn't like waste it doesn't feel like such a waste of time because you know you're getting to the actual story in a bit. Right. And it's like, that It also reminds me, Hopi's, is it Hopi's last time in Hoppers in the series where she hangs out with her brother's ex-girlfriend? Like... That turns out that has so much potential. Yes, except, those are yeah, too. Except yeah. previous to that, we'd actually done a whole story arc with her useless fucking brother. Yes. And it's just like and one of the um one of the issues does have the Jaime stuff as Locos, you know, as the boys. 
And it's like, he really didn't realize what a fucking drag these guys were because they're not interesting in any way, shape or form. Well, it might be a point too. I don't know if you want to look, you could interpret it. It makes a point, but I do not honestly believe he would have gone on as long with it. Well, I will say one thing that, uh, it, it's, it's a foreshadowing. I mean, they, they have to be in there. And for Mm. some reason, thought they were important and he wanted to continue like like i don't know you know a lot of guys whose lives where they spend five or ten years just dicking along until they finally get it whether they meet a woman or they get a real job they're just kind of screwing along and that's ray and doyle to a nutshell they've made no progress during their formula of years as adults let's put it that way i don't think so very yeah so these aren't over and i'll leave it at that okay so um the only other thing is somebody actually commented on one of our podcast episodes about oh how, yeah on the on comics gallery's facebook about how he should read love and rockets because he was finally gonna go for oh, it right yeah i remember that now yeah 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 and we told him to go definitely go linearly um yeah i would prefer linearly especially after hearing you talk about the collected volumes yeah. and the way they in a different manner now one could argue maybe it's the first time you saw the material that you got whammed by it and not so much the second because you're looking at it from experience and a more studied eye but i didn't actually remember i i I misremembered quite a bit about how chester square went and it's all in a different order makes a lot if you're following the organic path of the artist who's telling the stories revisitation to see well how should we reassemble these as a forever thing, because no one is going to read them linearly anymore. Right. Except- you can't even get the first 15 collections anymore, I don't think. No. So, right. So, and so, it, and the current collections of Love and Rockets are recollected from how they were presented in Locus. Well, I, I, I okay, yeah. yeah. The new trades, those are based on how they collected Locus and Palomar, not okay. how they collected the first 15. Um, but the one thing you're going to miss if you go into it like that is, is I don't think you're going to get Rocky and Fumble collected. And I think all this kind of non-essential material is still essential. If only to find like a fuck off day where he says, I want to do a story, but I don't want it to hit me over the head. I want to do a Rocky and Fumble story. And the Rocky and Fumble stories show a level of... Artistic... Rocky and Fumble kept the sci-fi influences for Jaime a lot longer than Locus or Mechanics did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he almost did them all. As he, yeah. When he told me all the science fiction shit's out the door, yeah. except for any century. And then fantasy comes in. Yeah. So, uh, Rocky and Fumble, if you can track that down, too. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it took me... I finished this up, uh, what, at the beginning of February, I think? It did take a lot longer than a year exactly because um well, you know, it was a hard that, hard process um that's over an issue a week though no because there's only fi- i only read 51 comics oh so it's and just i did it over let's say an issue every two weeks or something yeah, like that. that's a lot to swallow it is I, and, I, and i'll talk about later on we're going to talk about um, some other stuff where it might it'll fit where I talk about the process for writing them a bit 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that impressed me, and, and it's always thinking when you, and I, you know, you wonder there's be less and less people that experience this nowadays. Um, was the fact that when Love and Rocket started out, you had two young creators who were just beginning to understand the language of comics when they jumped in full force, but had so much talent that by issue three or four, you know these guys are masters or they're going to be masters. Mm-hmm. And masterpieces as time goes on. I mean, by the time you get to Love and Rockets 10, is it? Beto is fully, I mean, he's always dabbled heavily in the formal implementation of narrative. And by Love and Rockets 10, when he's shooting back and forth between time and space and different characters' lives and so forth, it's a challenging read that you really have to pay attention to. But it's worth every second of it. And to see these guys develop to where they're at and where they want to be. And you're about halfway through, so that's good. So you can have some fun. What was the name of that trade I think I gave you at Penny Century that was a collection for the first two collected stories ones? That's God and Science. Yeah, you know, if you want something light, and, and it jumps in the future a little bit, but it doesn't hurt the narrative. Okay. Light, that's a good way, because if you want a good, lighthearted Penny Century story, that's a great one anyway. And it, it totally, it takes DC's crisis on Infinite Earth and makes it good. <laughs> it's it's damn good. All right. Anyway, that's Love and Rockets. So we, we, we highly recommend anybody who has uh, the tenacity to get involved in comics to read this, if you're not familiar with it. But, you know, the linear version, sadly, is probably the better way to read them, as we both agree on anyway. Yeah. And that hardest one to challenge and find you to get to, you know? Um, you yeah, sure can. I, 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 there's one other thing uh, that I just thought of. Uh, Beto does a biography of Frida Kahlo. Kahlo. That's phenomenal. Oh, just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw it. I'm trying to think if it came out around the same time as that... Uh, movie on no, her. I, no, was much, Ten uh, years earlier, at least. Oh, wow. So that movie could theoretically have read Beto's Frida Kahlo star and says, I could do a movie on this woman yeah. and it would come out great. And it did. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff throughout, but yeah. Um, I don't know how Love and Rockets is collected, but like, if they have released some of the extra, or the non- primary material now but it's all worth reading but yeah i mean going linearly don't pick up volume three and then go back to one yeah you need to carry it through yeah what was it too and and when you say that word non-primary that could almost like explain their evolution in time as artists Mm -hmm. because as they go on more and more of their work gets non-primary and it's just uh, a wonder to behold, and it's just really nice to see somebody in their 60s still a, 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 a valued cartoonist or artist. So enjoy, my friend. Okay, so now we're going to talk about um, media, uh, comic Me- book related media. What? Yeah, yeah. I guess we're going to start. We're going to start with TV because we got TV on here first. And it's always about comics translated into television or movies. That's the key thing, you know. So we talked a little bit about Punisher Season 2, which... Well, I I found that it, like, deviated from, like, the Punisher theme that I'm so familiar with. Yes. Darth Ennis fan, 
and this pretty much eschews the comic, or not eschews, it emulates the comic books, because especially at the end of season two, where he's like, blow, you know, well, the final... Yeah, it's it's like... It's like castle there, but the whole series is infused with a lot of things that aren't Frank Castle. Right. And- Love interests. Uh, and, and Frank talks a whole lot. He talks, Frank talks so- a lot. Yeah, it's... He, but but it's not bad. I don't know. It's just different. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I thought it was it was pretty successful until the end, and then they make this desperate bid to appeal to the Punisher War Journal comic fans. That right? It's like they almost returning to a simplistic roots that the series is already overgrown. Right, and it's like it never had. Right, like it it wasn't like that. It didn't need to be part of his story. Like, okay, if he blows up a gang on the way of his travels, who gives a fuck? Now they turn him into the stupid thing that he was before, you know? It's almost like they knew, like the Daredevil guys, this is going to be it. So how do we end this and call it a complete cycle? And that's the end put on it for. But I think, what was it? Uh, I was really mad about the love interest because, for one thing, Frank knows better, all right? He doesn't get I, – I never read, like, the Jim Lee years of Punisher when he was popular. But Frank is not a character that gets involved with women because, A, it's a danger to them, and, B, it's a danger to him. And and, and I was so mad that he gets this woman involved in the early part, the uh, honky-tonk bartender woman who's the single mom. Yeah. And then all that shit happens, and they never mention her again. I told you, you have to get through the first two episodes. But the thing is, is where they ended him last season, he wasn't the punish. Like, they had to, like... They grafted identity onto yeah, him. Yeah, it, it, you've got to get through the first two episodes, and that's fine. Then it gets back into itself. Right, right. Well, I don't know. I, I still I still think that the pseudo-sexual nightmarish version of the young lady taking a bullet out of Frank's butt. <laughs> what about the director's aims with Punisher? <clears throat> Possibly one of the most graphic scenes in the series, anyway, uh, I might. So we but, forgot. Oh. Go ahead, finish up. We forgot to write down the other fucking shows. We. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we got was this. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah, Marvel. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. We can make a quickie thing. I mean, I think we talked about how Daredevil finished. Daredevil. And how, finished yeah, fine. Uh, Luke Cage finished like shit, but had a really good season otherwise. Now, was that the one where he gets the club at the end? That's how he finished. That was perfectly fine. That was nice. That would be a new introductory. He owns the the biggest club in Harlem, where it all happens. I think that's a good point for him. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Whatever. All right. But uh, it didn't have a nice ending. All the other series had a nice ending. That's true. Daredevil had the nicest ending where yeah. they all have dinner together and click a glass. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, again, my, my, my hopes for Disney carrying over this are null and void. They haven't had, well, you know, Disney money could have got all these guys over there because they don't work for Netflix anyway. No? What? So, the deal is, is once they've canceled the show... There's two years where they can't use them again. Two years, okay. Two years. Now, Disney Plus doesn't exist in a way that they could, like, renew the show. Okay. Hulu... People think that Disney's going to buy the rest of Hulu, and that's going to be where they put the Fox properties, of which... 
this more fits in tone. The other right. thing is the two year break. We had to wait three fucking years for a Daredevil right. series. I don't yeah, give enough. a shit. They get four or five series concurrently running. That's fine. You yeah. know, what I mean, you do, when you do the next, and it's two years between series. Roughly. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, two years is no big deal. Like, didn't the fucking Sopranos go like three years between seasons? Like, the kids were had mustaches. Like, I'm in two years for Jessica Jones. By the time we see those, yeah. So it's just like it's not that big of a deal. So nobody knows what's happening with that yet. But the reason, even Disney. Yeah, right. and Renew Daredevil is as they have enough money to take out ads in Times Square. It certainly seems like they can bring these back in a few years, but whatever. Here's the goal, too. Uh, someone like Netflix or people working for Netflix are trying to do a successful show that catches on. If Disney takes over these shows, they're trying to do a successful show that turns into a mega property. So that's a very different set of goals. So I don't, I, I hate to say it, but the cynicism in me says that, it, that it's best just to leave it at that yeah. and forget about it. I, I don't even know what the new Jessica Jones is going to come out to be. I didn't care for season two as much, but I'm, I'm definitely going to be on board for the last of that. Well, let's see. Marvel takes their toys and goes home. That was that. Was that. Uh, CW yeah. shows. Yeah. Still relevant? I'm three behind on Supergirl and Flash. Um, and you know something I can say that you could be without too many problems because there isn't anything like radical or different that's happened uh, without doing spoilers. Uh, we're kind of, you know, they're kind of not running at pace, but they, they, they've gotten to the point now where they know how to produce a show and keep you going and give you a little hint of this for the next episode. And I'm like, well, you got to the problem with superhero shows is every season they have to outpace the last one. Right. You know, and they're not doing that, and that's that's the problem. Uh, what was it? Did they say this might be the last Legends of the DC Universe that series? season is in the last one. It's too bad because, in a way, they are the, actually the ones that have kept up the momentum. Yeah. They're only, what, three seasons into it, so who's – but the, the rotating cast of characters helped them a lot. Yeah, and – Supposedly, the Legends characters, some of the Legends characters are going to go back out to other shows. But Arrow might also be ending, things like that. Um, Amazing, they're actually going to cancel Arrow. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? Oh, God, they're doing a whole episode without any regular cast members set in the future this season. Like, they're desperate. To try anything. Just anything. But, well, uh, yeah, so... But our DC show, CW show, is still going to be relevant with DC Universe doing Titans and Doom Patrol. I think the answer to that is actually yes, because apparently DC Universe is about as popular as you'd think it would be. Which is jack shit, right? Which is jack shit. It is not justifying the expense of the show production. Well, you know when they said you got to sign up for the streaming service, I'm like, for what? And I'm trying to find content, and they've got all of three fucking shows, two of which haven't come out yet. And I'm like, so you want me to pay for old reruns of Shazam or old cartoons that I'm not going to watch again? I go, there's no reason to do this. You know what I mean? So I look forward to their shows like moving on to other Networks, perhaps, yeah. Well, Warner Brothers is going to do their streaming service in, I think, a couple of years. So they'll have this built in once they start, but they're going to incorporate this shit. The other thing is, um, 
Do you think there's enough people to pay for DC streaming to make it worth their while for two or three years? I don't know. It's strange. I don't think so. No. Yeah, I think I, I, they'll let their initial subscriptions run. So. We'll see what happens with the DC universe. Um, CW, well, I don't know. Supergirl promised that ultra hot thing next year. What was that when the Supergirl, the, uh, Another one of DC's crossover events is going to happen. Crisis. Although, yeah, it's kind of backwards, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll see. see. Uh, we'll see. Supposedly, Batwoman's close to getting picked up. We'll see. She wasn't that impressive on the crossover, Supergirl. but she also wasn't featured. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a useless cameo. The right. Crossover this year didn't was, do it. No, it didn't. It did. I mean, that's kind of the thing that I, I feel like is lost uh, when you think about these shows now is that Supergirl had a really good season two. Flash right. had a really good season one. Like, not really good for The Flash, not really good for Supergirl, but really good. Right. It's like the stories transcended the importance of the characters instead of the other way around. Right. Yeah. So it's just, it's it's, you know, it's just... Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's got to be hard to come up with. What are they up to? Twenty episodes a season or something like that? I don't know, but it's got to be difficult to keep something fresh, keep the whole production people on, all the actors involved. There, yeah, and there's rumors Flash is looking at losing people at the end of this season. Supergirl lost has been losing people since the start. Like, it's, you see, keeps rotating people around. Yeah, they're the only ones you can do it organically. Right. So. Right plot or whatever yeah so it anyway. kind of didn't hurt either because it turned it more into a pg-13 type of episode yeah thing. so well i don't know well we'll just have to wait and see although you know they're still on i guess that's a plus you know right. i mean that's the thing is is that they are not streaming shows in an era where shows i think that's kind of the thing is is that the first season of the flash is a binge-worthy show right they're not oh, binge-worthy yeah, yeah. No. It's, like, it's kind of sad because you watch one episode of the flash thinking you're going to be entertained and you're really you're like well who are these characters what are they doing why do i have to pay attention to the last episode all right. that kind of who thought Chris Klein was going to be a good villain? Like, fire that person right now. Oh, that's a guy that's a cicada? Yeah. Yeah, he's pretty awful. Yeah. I like his, uh, was it the black lady who's the nurse? Yeah, or the... the doctor, yeah. It's much more interesting. Strange but true. Yeah. So now Deadly Class, did you watch that? Yeah, and you know, there was a, there was a wacky get to see another one too, but I haven't had the opportunity. The first one was fine. I, I, it's a it's a property, believe it or not, by Rick Remender. Of all and um, I forget who the artist is on it, but uh, it's an X Men kind of show, except if you were in a school of assassins. And uh, they really don't demonstrate their powers as much, so it's kind of interesting because they get beat up a lot or they have threat, threats to them. And I would call it a nice. Like where CW was at the beginning of the seasons, it's very interesting, but not in the higher level of some of the other shows that were okay. probably. In. But worth your time if you're transferring comics into a, a video equivalent. You know, what I mean, it's kind of nice the way all of uh, a lot of these shows now they have to compete. Now there's enough of them now 
to where they're not going to get developed unless they think there's something that's going to get capture an audience now. Whereas before they were just willing to throw any shit on the thing. I mean, that's where you get Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. from, of all places. Because that was utterly horrible. But uh, Deadly Class actually kept my attention. Now, but Netflix is still seems to be the juggernaut to beat these days as far as the kind of stuff we're into. I mean, uh, did you get through... Let's see, you got through, you probably didn't even look at Umbrella Academy yet. Nope. That was actually better for me than Sabrina. Because okay. it, it transcended the comic roots. Uh, it had pretty good production values. They spent a buck on it like they did with Sabrina. They had really good costuming and sets and everything like that. Um, and it took, what's his name, Way and uh, Fabio Moon. Remember they did that? Was that yeah. a Dark Horse? I think way back in the day, which was a decent read. You know, it wasn't anything like to the next level, but it was decently constructed and it seemed like something that Gerard Way had in his head for a while. And uh, they were kind of engaging characters and I could see where it would be a hit, just like Sabrina would. I mean, they're both pretty good marks. Sabrina doesn't transcend its original material simply because it can't go as horrific as the original mm-hmm. material, but it does up the ante for the shows. Let's put it that way. And they, the casting is perfect on the fucking show. I mean, everybody is perfect on that show. It's like they went to the ends of the earth to find these people, not only who looked like their comic book versions, but acted like them as well. And it's just, the, and, and it was that they finished the, they were really sharp. They actually, there's such demand for that. They had like a, a Christmas special. Yeah. And that just seamlessly took the plot lines from the end of the show and kept advancing them all the way putting through a Christmas special, which I really, I liked nice. a lot. That, that showed class. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what else did fumbling along here? Russian, Russian doll. doll. That's not a comic though. So. No, but it's fantasy, sci-fi, weirdo, dystopian type weird shit. How'd you finish with it? I liked it. It took a couple to catch on for me, but once it did, I liked it. Yeah, once you get into the interior logic of the puzzle and everything, it's kind of fun and it ended well. I'm not sure I want to see the same two characters if they do another season, yeah. but I think it's necessary. Sometimes they think it's necessary to carry characters on. I'm like, no, just invent the whole thing from cloth because you got a structure here. You could work on a lot of different types of stories. So we shall see. Um, let's see. Last thing is movies, and then we've got news. All right, news it is. Let's no, see. Movies, oh, then news. Okay. Oh, I did want to mention Disenchanted, which was Matt Groening's thing. Which oh yeah, yeah. A, I'd say okay. And then Watership Down, which I found boring, which you could take a pass on totally. Is I mean, that it was CG. Yeah, okay. but it's animation though. But it doesn't have any sex or violence. Now, granted, uh, these are all rabbits, but come on, this is Netflix. We can have sex and violence of rabbits. All right, on that note, we'll move into movies. This was a huge... I'm looking at this list, and we probably don't even have to complete. But 2018 was a huge year for movies. I mean, totally fucking ridiculous, man. Did, I mean, when all this bullshit started, did you think you'd have a murderer's row of successful movies like we see here that are related to comic books directly? Especially... Okay, so... Do a comic book movie. Okay, so have you seen Deadpool 2? I have. I liked it better than one, although okay. I'm in the middle. Have you seen Venom? Yes, I did. I saw Venom, and I give it. Uh, I give it. I give it two and a half, three stars out of five. Worth watching. Wow. They, they, we'll talk about that in a bit. 
Mm-hmm. Stayed tongue in cheek. Yes, uh, it was fine. You didn't see Aquaman though. No, I had no desire to. Okay. Sorry. All right. So yeah, it was a big year for movies. Um, Black Panther was a huge hit, um, and sort of continued Marvel's sort of post Joss Whedon strides toward it. Quality. Avengers followed it by a few months. Yeah. And it was like they were the same film or just like different issues of the same comic in a way, I guess you'd say. Unbelievably successful. I mean, it made comic books real, you know. And I'm not saying these are great movies. They're not great movies. But they're great roller coaster rides, you know. I don't know. You look at – it's kind of weird. Like on one hand, when you when you grow up loving films for technical value, you know, you look at directors like John Ford or Alfred Hitchcock or, or even Orson Welles and I'm like, okay, but these guys are technically proficient too but in a different way where they can make a fantasy story totally realistic and believable in front of your eyes like this. Yeah, I think that – well, I mean I think it really is just that – because this sort of started with, I think it really started with the uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. The, I didn't get to see that when oh, you... That, it's fucking great. The new Spider-Man? You haven't seen that? I want, it's so went, good! What are you doing? It came up on Netflix and Redbox and I fucked off. I don't fucking, know. I don't... Like, that's the one movie that I'm sad I didn't see in the theater. Like, okay. it's really good. Like, they finally figured it out. Now, this is the one with uh, the... The vulture, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, good. They, they finally, finally figured, fucking figured out Spider-Man, yeah. After all these films of Spider-Man, they yeah. finally got one to watch. Jesus, okay. Okay, so there's that. But then, you know, they kept it going with uh, Black Panther and then Infinity War. I just feel like they've hit their stride in a way that it took them a while to do because things didn't quite work out. You know, it's like... Yes, Avengers 2 made a bunch of money, but nobody liked it. Well, yeah, it was overwhelming for people, I think, that weren't versed in comic book stuff. It it, it ignored real life and real characters. Well, no, so not like, Infinity War, the, the one with Ultron. Oh, I didn't even see that one. See? Yeah, I, like, yeah. It, yeah, and it's like, so Infinity War, yes, it excluded people but i don't necessarily know that i i like i'm rolling my eyes when i say that because it's just like well it's not about people well that but i mean it excluded audience that didn't think they were um able to follow it but at the same time i don't necessarily i think that that's a mental block i don't necessarily i think that if you just went into that you would have been fine with the vague understanding because it's so action it's so action oriented that you just it's need to pick, deep. you yeah, just need yeah. to pick up their personalities as it goes and you need to not be hostile to not feeling like you can follow it I feel like that's someone sounds exactly like Japanese manga when I talk about Japanese. Right, manga. and it's just like no, you just you just need to not have that hang up that you don't think you can follow it. Yes, because my wife would never see a film like that, and then my two best friends, one of them, Sheldon, collected comic books, 
And they both thought that the movie was a little overwhelming in terms of characters and keeping up with the story. But, yeah, yeah, you just got to dumb down and just accept whatever's thrown in front of you. Just, okay. Yeah. So, pretty, yeah. Was, and then, yeah, so then there was Deadpool 2 that was really successful. I haven't seen it yet. I think it was better. They, you know, although people said one was better. I'm like, I don't know, the inclusion of other characters in 2. And Ron Reynolds, you know, you get a role that you're just born to play. What can you say? And then, um, so you liked Venom, huh? You know, I went to to watch Venom with zero expectations. Mm-hmm. I was just with my brothers, hanging out Saturday night, getting drunk, eating crappy pizza. Zero expectations. I found it entertaining because it never took itself so seriously, yet it was still connected with the Marvel Universe. Yeah. And uh, it was more of a horror movie, but it kept Venom in there because he had a personality. I mean, it kind of denigrates into the big ending thing like they all do. But you know what? I'd have to give it two and a half for plus stars just because it was watchable. Let's put it that way. I didn't find a watchable film at all. Um, And then Aquaman, you didn't see. I saw that. It was a huge fucking hit, too. Made made more money than anything since uh, Buttered Bread for DC, right? I mean, it, it beat Wonder Woman. It beat... DC Heroes, whatever the fuck it was. It beat uh, Batman, Superman. It beat, I don't know if it beat Dark Knight, but whatever. Yeah, whatever. Um, Aquaman. I guess, I guess it's what DC should be doing. Like making these shitty fucking, I mean, it's like, it's got shitty CGI. Oh man. Yeah. It's like Wonder Woman. It has crappy CGI. They, why do they fuck the budget on that? I never understood that. I don't yeah. know, but it's just like, and it's like, but so did the Harry Potter movies. Like, yeah. They get one or two scenes they have to get right, and they're willing to just kind of fudge the rest yeah. of the stuff. So it's like, okay, if it's, it, but it's it's really weird that otherwise comic book movies Though less with Venom. Venom did not have any exceptional CGI. No. But the Marvel ones, they have this sort of, their palette for CGI is so much more successful. And it's like, that also plays through to just big budget sci-fi these days. Like, um, What didn't Disney buy? Uh, what's the name of uh, Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic? I don't know if they do the effects on it. Maybe they do, but yeah, it is. It is far more like that. Yeah, and then the, what DreamWorks they own too. I mean, they have actually a lot of talented people. But still, you know, they spend how many millions of dollars on these movies? You'd think that they could. Um, did, yeah, hundreds of millions of dollars. It should have better CGI than Fast and the Furious Seven, shouldn't yeah. it? Like, why does Fast and the Furies have better CGI than a DC movie? That doesn't make any sense. Right, right. But it has to be realistic. Like, Fast and the Furious, you can see a car jumping off a train with CGI. It's not that hard. But okay. Aquaman swimming underwater, beating up on a dude with a big helmet head, that calls for not just good CGI, but good direction, too, to yeah. make it. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm talking through my ass. I don't know. Whatever. You didn't suffer yeah, through it. Well, Captain Marvel, the rushes uh, looked interesting, yep. but it seemed similar approach where they throw a lot of money in the special effects yeah, and they make cool you know that's Couple, the key one more week that's a week from now so i'll be seeing captain marvel Ooh, you're gonna go see captain marvel i'm huh? gonna go see captain marvel 
for you. I don't get, I, you know, I go see films now and I go with my wife. So we kind of find a middle ground more so nowadays, or they see a lot of the, the favorite or the green book or stuff like that. Nowadays, I can't, I can't get her to see Aquaman or any of that. That ain't him. She didn't want to see Aquaman. Monique wanted to see Aquaman. Well, yeah, well, my wife doesn't have Jason Momoa simplex either. Ah, so. okay. All right, well, I guess it's time to talk about news. Yes, big news of that, yes. Big, big news. Um, so, what did we decide on? I don't know. I got I got visual, visual here, but I think, was I that think it? It was visual. So, this is the 50th... Yeah, 50th issue episode of Comics Fundle Podcast, and much like Love and Rockets, we'll be wrapping up Comics Fundle at 50. Yep, Volume 1 is done. Volume 1 is done, and Volume 2 will actually be called Visual Reflux. Yes, it kind of reflects Andrew and Mai's more open spaceness to other forms of the comics and industry and visual types. Uh, we're going to shoot for an episode a month. Yep. Uh, where we will talk about comics, but also television and film if it comes up. But, you know, we are watching a lot of TV that is not comics-related, necessarily, so... Doesn't mean the bad could be fantasy-oriented, right, whatever works. Whatever works, so we'll be talking about that. Could be BBC. Well, I hope so. Could be Grant <laughs> Chester, but... Uh, I'm trying to see the East Enders. I've never seen it you watch Grantchester, though, don't you? I do not. Most of that stuff, I, you know, my wife loves a lot of that English stuff, and I'm like, oh I know, I get repelled and run out to the oh, kitchen. So. You just, oh. All right, so anyway, so I'm visual suffering. reflux, we don't have a timeline, but in about four to six weeks, we should have the first episode out. We will be including that on... Um, if you're subscribed to Comics Fondle now, you will get the first episode of Visual Reflux, and we will see how much it weighs comics versus TV as to whether or not we sneak a second one onto the uh, Comics Fondle uh, subscription. But the Visual Ooh. Reflux subscription will be live in, with the first episode, but if you're subscribed to Comics Fondle, you also get Visual Reflux. Um just for me, uh, with Comics Fondle, the blog, I'm going to be taking what I learned from the process of going through Love and Rockets, which involved reading the issue multiple times, and applying that to uh, my posts going forward, but it basically means a lot less posts. Well, yeah, like I say, you get involved in a certain period of history, and that's kind of where you want to discover right now. Yeah. And that's I'm I'm not quite sure. I seem to be unearthing like old antique things that I'm really enjoying. I'm trying to alternate posts between new material and ancient material. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of where I'm at right now. You know, I don't go to the big conventions. I go to the little shows and dig up old shit out of the bins, you know. And I don't know. I'm just digging that more. What can I tell you? You know, yeah. hopefully you'll love uh, the ride that we take you on because it's always guaranteed to be, guaranteed to be something you, you, you haven't heard before. You know, yeah. that's that's. So, visual reflux will be, yeah, so it'll incorporate all sorts of things. Um, and that's, uh, it's been 50 episodes. It took me when do we do years to convince you even to do this. Yes, In I the know. first place, it I'm, took I'm me a... years. 
And let me see if I can find when we actually started. The first, the first broadcast one. happened Let's three see. million years ago when dinosaurs walked the earth, perhaps. Right, I hold on. We actually, Google actually has the podcast under content. Wonderful of Google. God bless Google. So let's see when the first one was. All right, we're going back through the 40s here. Oh, my God. Going yeah. back. And, and what did we, maybe what, one, what, five a year, maybe six a year? I think that was about our average a lot of times. Uh, yeah, we, you know, for a while I feel like we were making it every month. Well, I'll be honest with you, uh, uh, Comics Fondle and... I enjoy comics final, but there's just not enough comics that you and I can read unless we go out and hunt. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I used to be kind of like a thing where comics just fell into your lap because there were so goddamn many of them that were good. But I can't even walk into a regular comic book store anymore and find anything I want to read. It's very difficult. So I do my inter, 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 what do you call it? I do research on the internet when I hear about stuff, and then I go hunt it down. Um. But I think the media and the television have been, I don't know, they've been more successful at translating comics to a new audience. I mean, a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll finish up with this Captain Marvel, okay, which you probably got tickets for already, right? Why well, don't I have tickets for it? Okay, so the first episode of Comics Fondle was June 29th, 2013. So we have been doing this for five and a half years-ish. Okay, so it comes out to almost nine or ten episodes a year. Yeah. That's not for, for a couple of guys that have full-time jobs and are married to women who like to do things on their weekends with us, uh, that's not too bad, I think, you know. Yeah. The crazy geeks to do. Our, 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 who, the, who the hell is it over there on the West Coast? Jeff and uh, what's it? They do like a weekly Graham, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, God, you guys are married. And when he's got kids and your wife still lets you do a fucking weekly podcast. Oh, my God. Marry that woman. <laughs> so, Yes. Uh, and visual reflex, we're just going to try to be, we'll be, you know, a lot of it's material, but there's been a lot of material to talk about more stuff in TV and movies than God help us talk comic books. Comic books will not get lost though. I want to stress that that's always going to be part of our repertoire. Visual. And, uh, what is it? Uh, And and I'll finish off with this uh, little thing about the survival of comics and, uh, Andrew was nice enough to send me a link to famous comic book retailer Brian Hibb of San Francisco's Comics Experience, who owns two stores, has been involved with comics. My God, I think he bought his store two or three years before I opened mine, and he worked there prior to that. So he's got more experience than I do, and he recently came up with like a, a, a list of 10 things or so that will help comics grow. And I'll be honest with you, when I first got into the business, comics sold – to the point where Marvel, if a Marvel title went below 50,000 copies an issue, it was up for cancellation. I should be not. And now I look at the monthly lists, and there are many, many comics now that make the top 100 that sell 20,000 copies or more. And so that tells you something. And I'm not quite given to confidence that Marvel and DC can figure it out because they've never shown the ability to figure it out. And now they're owned by huge corporate entities that really don't publish comics for the same reason that Marvel and DC did when they were independent comics many years back. Although Warner was good about letting yeah, DC have the... But Warner, let's not forget, closed like all of Warner Media except for DC or something. And moved them out to California next yeah. to their development stuff. So that told you what the picture there was. And I think one of the other things that has changed since you opened the store 
is that for a long time, as long as a DC title sold more than 15,000, especially if it was a Vertigo, it was safe from cancellation because yeah. there was the promise of bookstore trade sales. Yes. And then everybody... Contract, too. Yeah. And then people got a look at what those sales looked like, and they weren't very good. So for, you know, 15 years, DC operated on hubris with yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And it finally caught up to them once, you know, and it's like, it's... They hired the big three to head DC when they moved out west. That was, I said, these guys got their head up their ass. They have absolutely no idea how to publish comic books whatsoever. Right. Jim, so no propensity to know how to publish comics. So I'm like, that was it. I said, those guys sold them a bill of goods, and that was that, you know. And Marvel, brought up by Disney, they've, they've collapsed into Disney's whatever. Whatever it is. So... But, uh, Anyway, are we looking forward to Captain Marvel? <laughs> I'm looking forward to Captain Marvel. I just, you know, I'm sitting there thinking about it, like, God, that character was so fucking inter- uninteresting. I mean, I don't care if it was Marvel or Carol Danvers. Somebody come into my shop and said, hey, I want to find some background on Captain Marvel. Are there any good Captain Marvel graphic novels? And I said, absolutely none. There are none whatsoever. I have no clue on this. Oh, wait for me. Wait for this. Vern. Could you direct me to a good um, Hulk graphic novel? I'm sure we could find two or three of them, maybe. No, you couldn't. What are you talking about? Bruce (laughs) Jones wrote it for years. You hated that. Peter Davis wrote it for years. You couldn't understand that if you didn't read 60 issues a chunk. Yeah. (laughs) There weren't good... It was in, what was it? Tales to Astonish with the Submariner. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, back in the the first six. then yeah yeah uh-huh well okay yeah. Vern, can you direct me to a good uh can you direct me to a iron man comic from before the first movie that you think is good absolutely not <laughs> it wasn't until matt fraction got on that book as a sequel to the fucking first movie that it got readable for 60 issues Yes, that's true. Fraction was the ace on that one. Right. And, and it's uh, like Captain America without Brubaker. Uh, no. Ass, yeah. Ass. Spider-Man. Mm. Too many pieces of Spider-Man hold up over time either. Exactly. And it's like the first ones do. Like that was Marvel's thing was is the first Spider-Mans were special. The first four, right? Like, but it was DC who produced trade-worthy material in the 80s and 90s. True, very much so, yes. Whereas then DC turns around and makes movies with none of that fucking material. Well, yeah, you're right. The DC, they, they've like shown a hodgepodge of all the most successful shit that's been in their comic books. And yet they don't, the movies just feature the bits and pieces of the history that worked for them. Whereas Marvel pretty much takes it from whole cloth from the yeah. comic. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be smart continue along that vein i don't know so i just think that um yeah i i just think that with the exception of what's that the priest black panther run from the 90s was awesome it was but 
pretty literary. I'm not sure that anybody could follow it. Other and than had that. nothing to do with the movie. Absolutely nothing. So it's like, yeah, it's like Captain Marvel. You don't have to be interested in the uh, character. character. You're right. Yeah, you just have to have a structure of a plot. Yeah. Like Black Panther was very similar to Ennis's Punisher, where the Black Panther wasn't really a character. He was a character in his own book. He was a catalyst. Right. It was, was it Jay Everett Cooper or whatever the fucker's name was? So, yeah. It's, uh... Well, there you have it. So we're going to explore, like, now that comics are morphing into television and movies, they seem to have a different life, and I think that's what we're going to explore from now on. Yeah. Vernon's oh. got two bells going off at once over there. Well, it looks like it does. Yeah, let me just uh, put that on. Thank you. I know technology. Wow. Did, did your doorbell just ring on your phone? Yeah, that's my chime. It's different from everybody else that owns an e-phone or whatever, iPhone. I mean, you know, that's what I hate. On television, you'll hear it and you'll think it's your phone. So that's why I put it as a doorbell because I know it's my goddamn phone. All right. At any rate, we're going to wrap it up here. Yes, we are. It's uh, Thank you for sticking it out for this mega size podcast two and a half hours or something might be pushing three my friend yes well virgin i need to go do other things with our friday and uh thank Thank you you for listening yes thank you for listening we will be back uh soon um we promise we promise exactly we and you know what that good's for anyway i don't say that But uh, keep following us at Comics Fondle if you're interested in the kind of comics we're reading anyway. Yes. Uh, Be good, folks. Bye. Bye.